Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now, he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. What's going on, Bruce? How are you today, man? It is colder than a witch's you-know-what here in Friendswood, Texas. Well, it's uh, it's not much warmer here in Huntsville, Alabama, and this is our Christmas Eve's Eve. Is that a thing? Edition of something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And uh, this kind of went exactly how I expected. Do you want to go ahead and give a concession speech now? This is bullshit. There's my concession speech. I demand a recount, and I am going to work on uh, getting my electoral college in order to go back, recount all of the votes, and we'll we'll see what happens when the electoral college makes their vote. Mr. Perfect was a -a one-of-a-kind guy, and uh, we're going to get into that in great detail. But before we do, let's kind of circle back to last week's episode where we covered the 1997 Royal Rumble uh, Bruce, what was the uh, feedback that you got from the show? So far, my my feedback was good, but then again, I only read the good feedback. I, I don't I don't read the negative stuff. Well, I think uh, it's obvious that uh, we have a hit with No Yob, and uh, you can be sure to go ahead and grab your No Yob t shirt at prowrestlingtees dot com forward slash Bruce Pritchard. Um, but I think a lot of folks were kind of polarized with our business talk because uh, we did discuss more of, you know, ticket pricing and the strategies behind that and marketing and, you know, just what all goes into promoting such a large scale show uh, as the 1997 Royal Rumble. But to me, the business side was kind of half of the story. Wouldn't you agree? I would. And I think that, uh, large majority of our audience kind of enjoys that talk at least i hope they do and we try not to get too mired down in it but it is fascinating when people realize i was talking to a friend of the show dave silva today and we were talking about some different things and we were in particular talking about the post 9-11 show And I was explaining to him why I felt that would be an interesting show. And he was fascinated by a lot of the things that he didn't know. The business end of what took place to what what had to take place to make that show a reality. And you delve in and ask the questions that I either choose to answer or not. 
Well, so it uh, works. I like that you're promo in a show that didn't win. We're going to get into Mr. Perfect. But first, uh, let's talk about a couple of different questions that we got on Twitter. I'm sure we missed a few. Uh, we'll try to circle back. But uh, one of them that I got a lot of is, hey, you didn't ever break down um, you know, how the finish got changed and whose idea it was. Uh, to have kind of the screw job finish with Austin winning after being eliminated, but the ref not seeing it. Uh, you kind of broke down in great detail that you and Pat put this one together. I just assumed that was Pat's idea. The change of the finish was probably Vince's idea. And the whole reasoning behind it was for us to get to Brett and Steve at WrestleMania. Sure. So that was, that was the reason we left those two in there. Um, now you say that, but at that time, you know, not to poke holes here and go into a whole nother rumble 97 show, the plan at Royal rumble 97 was not to get to Brett and Steve at WrestleMania. It was to get to Sean and Brett. Correct. Uh, but well, it was, it, it was, it was, at that time it was to get to Brett and Sean, but earlier, if you'd gone back in September, October, the plan was to get to Brett and Sean. Yes. Um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll We've talked enough about that. We'll circle back. Kind of talk us talk us through payoffs for the Raw Rumble. I know you're not Jim Cornette, and you don't have a ledger in front of you that says exactly what everybody got paid top to bottom. But there was a pretty interesting question. Hey, does a quick elimination in the Royal Rumble mean a smaller payday? Like, you know, the famous Bushwhacker Luke is in and out in just a second. In 97, Lawler was in and out. Uh, Mark Gunn was in and out. Did those guys get a smaller payday because their contribution to the match was smaller, or is that not necessarily the case? No, that's not necessarily the case. It would depend on the talent and, and what they contributed overall. Uh, it's, not right. their, it's not their fault. They weren't really eliminated in 15 seconds. So. No, no, we agree. I just, you know, we get questions, I ask them. Uh, Bruce, when I say Kurt Henning, I say Mr. Perfect, what's the first thing that springs to your mind? <laughs> It's not a rib. Um, Kurt was a master ribber. It's it's funny that you bring that up. But Kurt was a master at everything. He was probably one of the greatest natural talents I ever had the pleasure of being around. Well, what we want to do here is uh, kind of give a little bit of a preamble for what led to Kurt being um, the wrestling superstar that he became with the WWF. And then we'll do a little post as well. Uh, similar to what we did with Vader and Brian Pillman, uh, if you enjoy these type of biographical looks at an individual guy, I highly recommend those. We did one on Dusty Rhodes in the WWF, the Ultimate Order in the WWF. So there's lots of fun stuff in the archives to check out. Uh, Curtis Michael Henning, though, was born on March 28th, 1958 in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. And Minnesota is a big part of his story. Uh, he was one of five children. His dad, of course, was Larry the Axe Hitting, and he was the middle of three boys. His older brother was the better amateur wrestler, and his younger brother tried pro wrestling too, but it just didn't work out. Uh, Bruce, for those of our younger listeners uh, who are listening who may not be familiar, tell everybody a little bit about the respect that Larry the Axe Hitting carried in the business. Well, Larry Hennig was a legitimate badass. He had the nickname The Axe because of the clothesline that he used as a finish. My first exposure to Larry Hennig was when he was a tag team with Harley Race. It was Handsome Harley Race and later Mad Dog Harley Race and Larry the Axe Hennig were a great tag team. I remember them in the Amarillo Territory, and he was just a 
he wasn't fat. He was just big and thick, thick and mean. He was just a big monster of a man. I, the best description, which I don't know this will be much of a description for our, our younger listeners, is, is kind of like Paul Bunyan. Yeah. Is, I don't know why that always came to mind whenever I thought of Larry the Axe Hennig, but he was a big, thick, mean man. Uh, his son, Kurt, Mr. Perfect, would start wrestling at six years old, and uh, Robbinsdale High School had a legacy of state wrestling champions uh, and just uh, a great amateur school to go to, including guys like Larry Henning and even Vern Gagne. Uh, other wrestlers you may have heard of, like the Z-Man Tom Zink, Nikita Koloff, Ravishing Rick Rude, uh, John Nord, who played the Berserker, and Barry Dorsall, who was the Repo Man and Crusher Khrushchev and Demolition Smash. Uh, they all went to Robbinsdale High School. So while Kurt was in high school, his dad actually had an opportunity to work for the WWF as a heel against then-champion Pedro Morales. Uh, and in his junior year of school, Kurt moved to Arizona when his dad tried to start his own territory in Phoenix. That didn't work out so well, so he was back home for his senior year when the family moved back. Bruce, do you remember... Uh, the rumors and innuendo that Larry was thinking about starting his own territory in Phoenix. Never heard that till you just said it just now. So no, that one's news to me. Uh, apparently a lot of people didn't hear about it. The territory was not successful. Uh, as an amateur, Kurt won about as many as he lost. And that kind of pokes holes in the Mr. Perfect name, but that was reality. He wrestled amateur at 154 and 167 pounds. Uh, he lettered in wrestling and football as a linebacker there. And he met his wife, Lenice, in the 10th grade and then married her a few years later in 79. They had four children together and were together through his death in 2003, which is pretty rare in the wrestling business. Bruce, wouldn't you agree that being married that long with the same woman is kind of a big deal in wrestling? That's a big deal just in life right now. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when, when I talk about being married for 23 years, people go, Huh? To the same woman? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, that's, that's a long time, I guess. Uh, what, if anything, do you remember about Kurt's wife, Lenise? A saint, an absolute saint. <laughs> and you'd have to be being married to Kurt. But Lenise was uh, really, really nice. Is Probably still is. I, I haven't seen her talk to her many, many years. But a really sweet, down-to-earth lady from the Midwest. Uh, after high school, Kurt played football at a junior college, and then he made the decision to give wrestling a shot. So he went to Vern Gagne's camp, like his dad before him, and on the WWE-produced uh, DVD on Mr. Perfect, Greg Gagne says that Larry would even bring Kurt to the training sessions when he was a little boy. Uh, anyway, Kurt wound up training with Brad Reagans for about a year. Uh, so while Kurt is training to become a wrestler, he became a father uh, Joseph Curtis Henning was born in October 1979. Uh, we all know him now as Curtis Axel. And Kurt made his wrestling debut in January of 1980 uh, for the AWA. Uh, before we move on here, Bruce, kind of tell everybody what the reputation of Vern Gagne's Hell Camp was and what reputation you know Brad Reagan's had in the business. Well, Vern Gagne was a amateur. He was national champion. He was on the Olympic wrestling team. And Vern was one of those old school guys that used to like to stretch whoever wanted to come in and learn to be a pro wrestler. You'd have a lot of pro football players or tough guys that thought, well, I can do that. That looks easy. All that fake stuff. 
Vern would bring him into the camp, get him in the ring. First of all, you blow him up by having him do about 10,000 Hindu squats, run five miles and a lot of calisthenics. And now let's hit the ropes and, and let's wrestle. And Vern would stretch him. And people say, why did he stretch him? And the answer is because he could. And Vern would just, that was his way of teaching people respect for the business right off the bat. And then you take a guy like Brad Rangans, another Olympian that was an incredible amateur wrestler. And Brad had a time that he was also a professional wrestler, but Brad was a trainer and Brad was a, a tough trainer and followed the state, the same regime that uh, regiment, if you will, that Vern did. He would take guys, stretch them and weed out those that they felt weren't tough enough to be in the professional wrestling business. So after working for the uh, AWA territory for a bit, Kurt gets a chance to work Madison square garden for Vince senior in June of 81 against Johnny rods, who we all know would later go on and become one of the more respected trainers around. And on the WWE DVD, they actually show him back at the garden in September of 81. Uh, kind of ironic considering what he's known for his opponent, Mr. Fuji. Uh, I found that to be hilarious. Two of the best reapers of all time uh, in the ring for one of Kurt's first matches at MSG. Anyway, uh, he's working this loop with his dad, and eventually his dad decides to go back to Minnesota, but Kurt stays. Uh, and during this time, he's actually billed as being from Elk River, Minnesota. Uh, Bruce, I'm sure we'll cover some later, but do you remember any any ribs between Fuji and Henning? It feels like these two guys had to be all over each other. You know, I'm horrible at remembering ribs when I asked. I think the best rib from Mr. Fuji was Steve Taylor, who was the photographer for the WWF magazine. And all the boys told Steve that on his first international trip, be careful of Fuji. Whatever you do, watch your bag at all times. Don't ever take your eye off Fuji. Sleep. Don't, don't sleep on the plane. Don't take your shoes off. Don't sleep on the plane. None of that. And Steve spent two weeks overseas with Fuji, just anxiety beyond belief, wondering when he was going to get ribbed. And at the end of the tour on the way back, Fuji asked Steve, how was your trip? And he says, well, it wasn't the greatest because I was scared to death of what you were going to do. And Fuji just laughed and ha ha, Mr. Fuji, I best the rib, no rib. And that kind of <laughs> didn't do shit to him the whole time, but Steve was scared the entire trip. So best rib, no rib. Uh, Buddy Rose would go on to get Kurt hooked up with Don Owens, and Kurt had a tag title run with his dad in Oregon. It only lasted a few days, uh, but he still got an opportunity to do it. Uh, I don't know that we've talked about Buddy Rose much on the show before, besides the blowaway diet. Uh, before he was kind of a parody of himself in the WWF when his weight kind of got out of control. Uh, how good of a performer was Buddy Rose? Buddy Rose was not a good performer. He was a great performer. And when you think about the old territory system where guys used to go in and stay for a length of time, and Buddy spent many, many years in the Pacific Northwest with Don Owen and was on top. And flying around in Lear jets, taking stretch limousines to the towns, making huge money, living the lifestyle. And Buddy was what his name said. He was Playboy Buddy Rose, and he lived the life. He lived the gimmick. 
And Buddy went on. He had a good stint in the AWA. He also had a hell of a stint with the old WWWF working with Backlund. And in his later years, back with uh, Vince with the WWF. But Buddy was Buddy was ahead of his time. If Buddy had come along about, I'll even say just 10 years later. He'd have been a big deal. He would have been a huge deal. Uh, Kurt would go on to bounce around uh, a little bit. Wrestling Tiger Mask in the WWF in 82 and Dynamite Kid in Oregon. Uh, Bruce, I made uh, mention of these two matches in particular because uh, so many tape traders back in the day were obsessed with Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask. Did you ever see any of their matches with Kurt Henning? Yeah, I saw the stuff that Kurt did with Tiger Mask and the uh, old WWF. And Kurt was a great worker then. He really was. Kurt just had a little bit of awkwardness that he had to get, just had to get comfortable, I guess is the best way to put it. But uh, I don't know that I ever saw any of his stuff with Dynamite Kid. But you could tell back in the early 80s that Kurt Hennig was something special. Absolutely. He did... um... Uh, did a series of tags with his dad in the AWA, which really brought new life to his dad's career. And it was a kind of a unique situation where a father and son got to tag together. Uh, but it wasn't that unique in the AWA because the Ganyas were already there. Uh, they did some matches with the road warriors and the warriors were the heels, but didn't sell anything. So of course they were cheered like crazy. Uh, and apparently in high school, uh, Henning sucker punched and knocked out Hawk. Bruce, did you ever hear this story about these guys running into each other in high school? Oh, yeah. I, I heard the story from both sides, actually. <laughs> so there's really a couple of different versions of the story. And then you, you throw in Rick Rude's version and uh, Joe Laurinaitis's version, and, and it's a kind of a hodgepodge upon who who they wanted to fuck with that day. So if you if you heard Mike Hegstrand Hawk's version, then... Kurt sucker punched him. If you heard Kurt, if you heard Kurt's version, he walked up and just knocked uh, Mike out. And like I said, depending upon Rude and and Joe, who they wanted to rib that day is whose version they chose to tell. That's fine. But all those guys, man, they all hung out together. They all knew each other from high school. Can you imagine that high school no. and um, you know a rival high school coming over to? To, to fuck with them <laughs> the, the rival high school is the legion of doom no i can't imagine that's crazy yeah i mean you got the berserker you got kurt hennig you got the road warriors you got rick rude <clears throat> that's all you need um i don't know where we'll fit this in so i just want to mention here that kurt debuted in professional wrestling at 210 pounds after finishing his amateur career at 167 uh, and he was probably at the height of his career around 245 pounds. Uh, in WCW, uh, he got up to 265, 270, and many thought he lost a step at that weight. Bruce, we've actually talked about weight on the Vader episode before and how the WWF was really watching guys' weight. Do you remember that ever having to be a discussion with Kurt? No, no. Kurt was never in any kind of shape that affected his work. Uh, Dave Meltzer has compared Kurt Henning to Barry Windham, uh, and, and that they were both second generation guys who had big 300 pound dads who were tough guys out of the ring, but maybe not the best in the ring. And then their sons would go on to outdo their fathers in that regard, uh, both a little taller, both a little leaner and among the very best by the late eighties. Do you think that's a fair assessment to kind of compare 
the lineage of a Barry Wyndham and a Kurt Henning just based on the way their fathers were and the way their careers turned out? Yeah, definitely. Because, but you also look at Larry and Blackjack. They were they were huge stars in their own right sure. in the territories, and they weren't the technical wrestlers, if you will, that their sons were. And you look at Barry Windham and Kurt Hennig, and I dare say two of the greatest ever to lace up a pair of wrestling boots as far as work wise and being able to do anything with anybody. Uh, Kurt would go on to work a series of matches with Greg Gagne in the AWA and eventually a very green Scott Hall uh, was his tag partner there for a bit before the AWA eventually gave up on Hall, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, the Wrestle Rock Rumble is worth a Google, kids. If you have not seen this, throw it in your Google machine uh, right now. Seriously, pause the show and go look for the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Uh, you'll see Scott Hall and Kurt Henning doing a rap to promote the AWA show. Uh, Bruce, do you remember any of the Wrestle Rock Rumble that you can recite off the top of your head? It is ingrained in my head. Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be in the Wrestle Rock Rumble. There you go. That's kind of about how it went. That's pretty close. Pretty close. Check it out if you haven't seen that. Uh, on November- we're going to do the wrestle rock rumble. There you go. Shit like that. That kind of chanty stuff. It was from the, uh, the Chicago bears had yeah. done the super bowl uh, shuffle, super bowl shuffle. Yes. And that, that was and that what was it was. Uh, wrestle rock rumble, like the super bowl shuffle. Yeah. It's there you ter- go. terrible. Uh, November 21st, 1986, the AWA is at the showboat in Las Vegas in front of a sold out crowd. And they have a television taping that night where Kurt Henning is going to challenge the 52-year-old Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA world title. And the match would air on New Year's Eve and drew great ratings to everyone's surprise uh, as the two wrestled to a bloody 60-minute draw. Uh, And a lot of people believe that this match kind of made Kurt. And afterwards, the WWF came calling. Uh, Henning had agreed to go. Uh, but the Ganyas interfered, of course, and promised him the AWA title if he would stay. Bruce, do you remember this match in particular being a conversation in the business and one that was kind of a landmark for Kurt early in his career? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. I I don't really. I, I remember the time, and I only remember it because Nick Bockwinkle was heavily involved in the Houston wrestling promotion as a partial owner. So I was semi-aware with things that were going on in the AWA, especially as they concerned Nick. And Kurt was one of those guys that was being considered for the championship at that time. I don't know the extent of the interest of the WWF, but Kurt was a star, and Kurt was on his way, and everybody knew it. Let me ask this. How common was it? for a promotion to kind of promise a title run as a way for leverage to essentially pacify a talent. Is that something that was fairly common or is fairly common? It was fairly common because that was a way to, to say to a guy, Hey, 
We're going to invest in you. We want you here. We'll make you the champion. And as the champion, for the most part, in the territory days, you were making the most money. There you go. That's what I wanted you to say, because there's a lot of people who will listen to this and think, oh, well, the belt's just a prop. What a mark, blah, blah, blah. No, most of the time, not all the time. There are certain exceptions to every rule. But uh, most of the time, the top guy, the guy with the belt, the champ, he's making the biggest piece of the house. So um, whenever people argue, you know, oh, I don't understand why so-and-so lobbied to keep the belt. You don't understand why he wanted to make more money? That's crazy. Um, anyway, Kurt would beat Bachwinkle at Super Clash on May 2nd, 1987 at the Cow Palace in San Francisco in front of just 2,800 fans to become the AWA world champion and turn heel in the process. Off the top of your head, Bruce, freestyle what the capacity of the Cow Palace is. Roughly, I think 10,000 people in that ballpark. And they drew 2,800. Uh, capacities are around 12,000. Uh, upwards of 13, depending on how the seating is. Um, either way, though, they drew 2,800 here for this. Uh, the AWA continued to slide, drawing just 1,800 fans for their big Thanksgiving show. And it was apparent at this point the only thing even keeping them afloat was that ESPN was paying them for their show. Uh, Bachwinkle was leaving the AWA to come to the WWF and become an agent. And the WWF was back again negotiating uh, to groom Kurt as a babyface, And the rumor and innuendo were that Ricky Steamboat had fallen out of favor after asking to take a leave of absence uh, while he was the Intercontinental Champion. Uh, Bruce, can you confirm this? Uh, n- number one, that Ricky had fallen out of favor after asking for a leave of absence and that they were considering bringing Kurt in in that spot originally. And I also want to know how Bachwinkle was as an agent. Well, let's go to Bachwinkle first and and the fact that uh, they say Bachwinkle was leaving to become an agent. In May of that time, Bachwinkle was, well, it it was during the time the reason Bachwinkle was losing the championship was because he wanted to move to Houston and be a major owner and a major part of the Houston wrestling promotion. In that same time, this is why the Houston wrestling show is so damn important. Because that was during a time that Paul broke away from the NWO, I mean NWA, and went with Vince. But Bachwinkle was looking to get out of the ring full time, move to Texas, take over the promotion, and do that. His time as an agent didn't come for a little while after that um, in the WWF. But, you know, Kurt. They had talked to Kurt about coming in, and um, there were a couple different times, and it just, was, just wasn't right. Kurt was happy doing what he was doing. Vern put an awful lot of pressure on Kurt, but he also put a lot of pressure on Larry to keep Kurt there, you know, and be the hometown guy and, and to help help Vern out. And there was a lot of loyalty there with Larry Hennig and Vern Gagne. I, uh, I've always been of the opinion that Bachwinkle – uh, started in late 87 uh, as an agent for the WWE and did some work as a color commentator occasionally here and there and then was cut in 89. Are you saying that's not accurate? No, that that is accurate, but I'm saying at this time, in a, the whole reason for Nick dropping the title, 
that was something that was put into motion because Nick had planned on kind of semi-retiring and moving to Texas. Okay. And Uh, then when, and then all of a sudden when Houston no longer existed and Vince had come in and we, we took all that over the opportunity arose for him to come to the WWF, but it wasn't to go from AWA to WWF. It did end up that way. Sure. Back then, it Got was it. it was a different plan. Uh, Kurt, as a baby face to replace Ricky Steamboat, how likely do you think that would have been? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I really don't know. I never heard that. Do you remember there being a little bit of heat on Steamboat for asking for a leave of absence once he had the Intercontinental belt? I know people weren't too happy about it because they just put the championship on him and wanted him for house shows and he was you know the oftentimes the headline in the b shows if you right. will yeah so let's break that down the, the wwf was running two sometimes three uh towns at a time during this era so on your a show you would have a hulk hogan or, or something like that a world title match as your main event on your b show you might have your intercontinental belt as your main event and so when ricky's asking for a leave of absence here, not only are you losing the talent, but you're also losing the belt, which is your automatic kind of go-to B-show main event. Uh, Kurt would go on to win PWI's most improved wrestler in 1987. And Bruce, it may seem silly now in 2016, uh, but for some of our younger listeners, explain what a big deal was Pro Wrestling Illustrated was back in the day. It was the magazine, and the only way that guys got national exposure, if you weren't in the WWF, and especially back in the territorial days, was to be in one of the magazines, to be on the cover, to be the PWI Wrestler of the Year, Most Improved Rookie of the Year, what have you. But to be in their magazines and be featured was a big deal. And if you're in... For example, the Florida Territory, and you're on the magazine, then that's a big deal because most of the time it was a lot of the guys from the New York territories because that's where those magazines were headquartered. So it was, it was a pretty big deal. It was the, it was the equivalent of being on Sports Illustrated cover and being the Sports Illustrated Awards if they even have those. Uh, yeah, there you go. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Uh, you know. So, uh, Kurt would lose the belt, uh, on May 9th, 1988. This is the AWA world title we're talking about, uh, to Jerry Lawler in Memphis in a match that Lawler still says today was his favorite match of all time. Uh, and the AWA had told court, uh, Kurt, shout out to court, court. shout out to court. Stop that. Uh, the AWA had told Kurt he was going to win the belt back quickly, but when that didn't happen, Kurt allegedly started talks with Vince. Uh, so how often do you think, I'm just curious because it seems like he negotiated a few times before he actually jumped. How often do you remember his name coming up in meetings with Vince? Well, at the time that was mainly Vince and Pat who were doing the creative and the booking and, and I was more on the television end of things, but Pat was a big fan of Kurt Hennig's. They were friends. Pat and Larry Hennig were friends and Pat had come from, Vern's territory and worked there for a long time. So Pat often brought Kurt Hennig's name up as, as a potential talent. And Kurt, as champion in his heel work, was really standing out at the time. 
So, uh, when, when he actually calls Vince this time, Vince does his usual first class air limo Marriott deal to have Kurt, uh, his wife, Lanice and his dad, Larry, uh, come over to Vince's house to talk about Kurt joining the WWF. Uh, and Lanice has said that Vince told them to think of a name and they kicked around stuff like King Curtis and hurricane Henning and stuff like that. Uh, before Vince asked the question, what do you like to do? And Bruce, I kind of want you to take it from here because we've always heard that Kurt said something like, I'm great at everything. Uh, were you there for this? I was not there for that meeting. And I, the re, the recount of this meeting is from Pat Patterson and what Pat told me about it. And that essentially Kurt said he was good at everything. He loved to hunt. He loved to fish. He loved to play basketball. He loved to golf. He did it all. He played hockey and he was the best at everything that he did. So he was the ultimate sportsman, if you will. And nobody could beat him at anything. So it was, it was Kurt being Kurt extolling his own virtues. So do you remember, um, who first said the name and gets credit for the actual name, Mr. Perfect? I, I want to say is either Vince or Pat. Don't really know. Pat is the first one who told me about it. Uh, before we go any further, uh, we should address this. We knew it was going to come up, uh, as Bruce likes to call him cockadoodle do man. Uh, Terry Taylor signed with the WWF the same month, July of 1988. And at the time they were both considered to be quote unquote, top 10 workers in the U S by guys like Dave Meltzer. Uh, and Meltzer said, <coughs> excuse me that the idea, uh, that these two ideas for gimmicks already existed is a myth. He says the idea that there was a Mr. Perfect character already designed. And there was a red rooster gimmick already designed. Uh, and one guy became a main eventer and the other guy got his career ruined is just a straight myth. Dave says, quote, it's not even close to true. Both did debut at the same time. Uh, but there were no ideas for either of them when they were first signed by September, Henning was even asking friends for ideas and Heyman gave him the name Curtis mayhem before someone else came up with Mr. Perfect. The story is out there now that Steve Austin, uh, when he was, you know, first signed to the company was going through a list of names from creative. And some of them were just super silly, like chili McFreeze and stuff like that. How did the naming process evolve from where it's just a couple of guys sitting around the pool at Vince's house to where now there's, you know, creative department generating a big list? I would say that that evolution really started to take place and form in the early nineties, um, 92 ish, 93, that creative services started to get a lot more involved and that Vince would utilize them more upfront and, Earlier, it was simply, we've got an idea. Here's the idea. Make this work to them coming into us. with we in, in about the 90s, Creative Services came in after we had a guy and we had an idea. And then they would submit a bunch of names and, and their own ideas. Bobby Heenan once said, uh, Kurt didn't want to be Mr. Perfect. He wanted to be a cowboy character. He loved that. His WCW gimmick was his favorite character because he loved country music and singing country songs. His dad always wore cowboy boots and loved country music too. Made no sense to me since they were both from Minnesota. You'd think they liked Viking music or something. Um, <laughs> obviously that's a joke. Uh, God bless Bobby Heenan. But 
I think a lot of people look at this Mr. Perfect gimmick and think, God, what a fucking great gimmick. I mean, even Terry Taylor looks at it and thinks, man, what if I could have gotten that? Did you ever have a conversation with Kurt about the gimmick or do you remember him expressing that he didn't like it or that he would have preferred something else? No, never. As a matter of fact, to the contrary, Kurt, at least to me, loved the gimmick, loved the gimmick, loved the idea behind the gimmick and fully embraced it. He did love country music and he loved to sing country music. As a matter of fact, he had a key to Tootsie's Wild Orchid Lounge in Nashville, Tennessee. His picture is up there right now, by the way. Yes, it is. He he had a key to it. He could come in, come and go anytime he wanted. And he loved Nashville and he loved his country music. Uh, so let's talk about what, you know what his favorite song was. <laughs> God damn. Are you gonna make me do it twice? So we have to listen to this shit twice. What? He stopped loving her today. Wow, I thought you were going to sing. No, it was George Jones, man. I'm pretty sure that was his favorite song. He loved him some George Jones. You've uh, you've broke out in song a few times with Conradison, and that's always um, that's always on your list. So I, I think that's like an old timey wrestler go to, is it not? Pretty much, yeah. You got to love you some Jones, man. Uh, yeah, Taz does too. Shout out to Taz. Uh, he's all about the Jones over there at the Taz show. So Gotta let's, be. let's talk about what we're really here for. What everybody remembers, the vignettes. Everybody remembers these so well because they just worked so well to get him over. Uh, they've just been memorable. I mean, to this point and so classic WWF. Uh, and I'm curious, Bruce, when I think about these, I couldn't help but wonder was Ted DiBiase introducing us to the Million Dollar Man the first person to get this type of vignette treatment, or was there one before him? I don't remember. No, there there were guys before him that would, you know, for example, Outback Jack. Back in the days, they did vignettes with Outback Jack before he came in. Um, different guys that would get the vignette treatment usually between three and six weeks before they'd come in, they'd run vignettes on them for the anticipation coming to the WWF. The million dollar man stuff was the first vignettes that were done by Joel Watts and I, and those were, uh, Joel Watts was a magnificent producer. That was Bill, Bill Watts son. Um, and Joel was a great producer director and he did a lot of stuff in mid south with the rock and roll express and the fantastics and the Freebirds. And so Joel brought a little different style to the WWF vignettes. And, and I kind of hopped on that and, and copied that and ran with that after Joel left. So, uh, you kind of said a minute ago, and we've talked about this before off air, there was a set number of vignettes that you guys kind of fell into a rhythm for. So say like a razor Ramon, when you're introducing that character, there was a, a real formula of how many and when they were put out and how many weeks and all that. Can you share some of that? Was it based on time? Was it based on number of shots? Was it based on weeks? Um, what were the numbers, the formula, the science behind introducing a WWF character? Usually, in a perfect world, we'd get four to six weeks vignettes on a guy so that the television audience would get used to seeing them and anticipate seeing them in the ring. 
The other idea was when they debuted in the arenas for that television taping, the audience knew them. Right. They knew who they were. They were used to their music. They were used to seeing them. And you had already they knew to preconditioned boo or cheer. them. Yeah. Yeah, they, they knew whether to cheer or boo. So after six weeks' time, that was usually long enough to roll them out and bring them out in front of the live audience and put them in the ring. So we're going to spend more time on this than we probably should. Uh, but this is such a, a, a fabulous piece of the story that I feel like it deserves it. We're going to break down kind of each vignette. And Bruce, I want you to kind of carry me through your memories of shooting each of these. Maybe some of these, there's nothing you remember. Maybe some of these, there's a lot of stuff you remember. Um, shooting pool. They showed him running the table, which is something that, uh, you know, if you're playing someone in pool and he's solids and your stripes or whatever, uh, and you're so good that you're sinking your balls every time the other guy never even gets a shot and they call that running the table. So this was shot. You've kind of told us before on a previous episode in Vince McMahon's home. What else can you share with us about that shoot? Kurt was the shits. <laughs> you know, the Mr. Perfect gimmick was a guy that could do everything perfectly. No matter what he did, he was better than everybody else, and he did it perfectly. And so the idea was to demonstrate that by doing vignettes, running the table, um, having a perfect game of bowling without breaking a sweat. Everything he did, he was perfect. So... When we got to billiards, the pool table, when Kurt was warming up and before we were rolling tape, Kurt is making these incredible shots. As soon as we would roll tape, he couldn't sink a shot if his life depended on it. And Kerwin Silfies, who was the director, and Kerwin, uh, shout out to Kerwin, longtime director for the WWF, great guy. Kerwin was setting these shots up, and Kerwin is somewhat of a pool shark, so that's a warning to any of you out there that ever runs across a short, little, gray-headed, bearded man um, wanting to play pool for money. Uh, Kerwin's a pool shark, and Kerwin was setting up these shots for Kurt, and Kurt couldn't hit him at all, and we just had to dummy up stuff as best we could because the whole idea behind the Mr. Perfect character would have been easy to edit the vignettes, and make them look like they were... But the audience knows. The audience would know. Oh, they could have cut to a different camera there, and that's not real. So we wanted to shoot them all with one camera and one take so that he could actually say, yeah, he's really perfect. So it took a long time to get those done. The The pool pool table shot, that was that was tough. And, then from and that's there, at Vince's house, and that's on <laughs> um, just a random weekday. You guys are... At the office and say, let's ride over to Vince's house. There's a pool table over there. No, we flew Kurt in and we had, we had a lot of the vignettes scheduled. We had the, we went right from the pool table to the dartboard, which was also in the the billiard room in Casa de McMahon. Right. And that was another one. Son of a bitch sat there throwing bullseyes while we're setting up cameras. And I'm thinking, well, this is going to be easy. You know, all I got to worry about now is is the cameraman getting the shot and getting the zoom right and getting all this in one shot. As soon as we rolled tape, Kurt couldn't hit the board, much less the bullseye. Now, thinking back, this all probably was an elaborate rib by Kurt, 
showing us how good he was. And then when cameras rolled, he would fuck up. But by the time we ended that, that, that shot, the bullseye shot was some great camera work and great direction by Kerwin where we just put Kurt probably, I don't know, maybe six feet from the dartboard and just they almost had him push, <laughs> push the damn dart into the bullseye. So it was, uh, that one was tough. The, the day, the day at Casa de McMahon was, was a little tough. So what all did you do after, so you did pool, you did darts. We did pool. We went over to the golf course and does we Vin, had, we, does Vince live on a golf course? No, no, okay. no, no. I mean, he could have a golf course in his backyard, but no, Vince didn't golf, didn't, didn't understand it. God damn. Why the hell would I spend three hours walking around chasing a white ball to put it in a tiny hole? Fuck Patterson. Yeah. He hated it. So you guys go to the golf course and you show Kurt sinking a long putt. Well, we had a pro that set the, uh, set the shot up for him. It was, it was a difficult shot, but there was a trick to it. And so the pro had the shot, had moved the hole, everything and set this shot up just right so that it, it could look like a damn near impossible shot, but there was a way to sink it. And the pro hit it every time. And he shows Kurt how to do it. Kurt hits it the first First three times, nails it. And then that damn record button was pushed. And it took him forever. But we, we finally got it done, and, and we all looked at each other like, this is going to be a long week because we had a, a week's worth of vignettes set up with him. And then we took him across the street from the uh, television studios in Stanford, right across from 120 Hamilton Avenue. We went to the bowling alley. And rented that for a day and shot the vignettes of Kurt bowling a perfect game. You rented the whole bowling alley? Yeah. This is a small bowling alley, but yeah, we rented the whole bowling alley. So when you're doing the golf deal, did you get a permit for that? We've talked a little bit before about how during the Dusty Rhodes vignettes, you guys would just kind of guerrilla warfare them and ask forgiveness rather than permission. Did you shoot the golf stuff at a country club or, or where did you shoot that? What type of course was it? And did you get a permit? No, I shot it at a country club there in in I believe Stanford, and one of the one of the guys at the studio was a member of the club and You're got the good. pro to set it up for us, and we got permission. There you go. So yeah. then the bowling. Uh, where do you do ping pong and diving? Ping pong we did at a high school gym. We just set up a ping pong table there, and and I believe that was Kerwin. I think that was Kerwin that played him in ping pong. <laughs> That's awesome. I've got some funny pictures of, of Kerwin Perfect and I. I remember uh, Perfect wearing Zubaz yeah. in in the shot. Supporting his Minnesota boys, the Road Warriors. Yeah. Where, where did you do diving? We did diving at, uh, may have been the same high school, in the, in the high school swimming pool. Uh, horseshoes? Horseshoes. Wow, I don't even remember where the hell we did horseshoes. We, that might have been a run and gun in a park somewhere. <laughs> I uh, meant, hmm. Because, again, Kurt's telling, about, telling us all this shit he can do. Oh, I throw horseshoes. I hit ringers every time. And meantime, we're, we're chasing horseshoes <laughs> as they're careening down the park somewhere. But that one, yeah, the horseshoes might have been a run and gun in, in uh, Norwalk Park. Uh, chess. 
chess. Man, as I think back, Kerwin Selfies was the star of a lot of the Mr. Perfect vignettes getting his ass kicked. Where was uh, where was that shot? It looks like it's in somebody's house. There's a couch that in the may background. that may have been in Vince's house in a corner. Okay. Yeah. Um, we just had the little table set up and yeah, and it's just like a yeah. living room, you know, with a sectional. It's really, really prime eighties decor too. Yeah. Um, hockey with Mike Modino. Okay, now though that's the second round of perfect vignettes. Those were the babyface, Mister Perfect vignettes, and that was during a time when we did. Uh, Kurt was coming back and reestablished the Mister Perfect character. And put him in a babyface role. So these were going to be the ridiculous Mr. Perfect vignettes. And the hockey stuff was done in Minnesota. And Sergeant Slaughter actually, I believe, produced the hockey and the football one. So in the football one, he throws a Hail Mary to himself. Uh, NFL yes. player Steve Jordan is involved. And I assume that was also in Minnesota. That was at a Vikings training facility. Exactly. And, and he... Then- through the yeah, and, and then ran down and caught it himself. Absolutely perfect. Last but certainly not least, in baseball, he called a shot and hit a home run with Wade Boggs there. Uh, were you involved in shooting that one, or was that the second round of babyface ones as well? That was the second round of uh, babyface ones, and uh, Bobby Heenan actually produced that one. Um, and then we, you know, we did the the basketball stuff. Um, those that's where I discovered doing basketball. That if I didn't tell Kurt that we were shooting, I would get all my stuff early on. And if he didn't think we were shooting, he was perfect. And that's how I got all those long shots and the shot where he throws it behind his back yeah. and looks right at the camera and says, absolutely perfect. He had no idea the camera was on. So you shoot him there doing half court stuff, three point, no look shots, all this. Uh, where, where did you shoot the basketball section of the show? That was done at a high school in Stanford. Okay, cool. Yeah, and uh, then but but Rick Flair's one. Rick Flair actually, we did something with Charles Barkley too in basketball, I believe, for the babyface stuff, and that was something that Flair helped us set up. It's funny as shit. We're we're standing there talking about these perfect vignettes, and and Rick is like, I'll just call it Charles Barkley, and takes his phone out. You've seen this, yeah. Rick just pulls the phone out and calls somebody. And so say, Charles, Rick Flair. Oh, hey, Rick, how you doing? Hey, we want to do some stuff with Kurt Hennig. Uh, could we use you on the basketball court? Sure. Okay, here, talk to Bruce Pritchard. That's exactly how it would go. I believe that. So we've talked about Kerwin Selfies quite a bit, and he actually appears on the Mr. Perfect DVD that the WWE produced. And uh, I know he was the director for these, but uh, he shares something that I thought was kind of interesting. He shows what he called a golden Mike award on the DVD. And he says that Kurt brought those to the crew. Can you tell me about those? I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Well, apparently he gave everyone he thought was influential in making these vignettes a success, a golden Mike award. And apparently you weren't shit because you didn't get one. No, I didn't. I just Uh, produced the damn things. Yeah. Well, I guess you got to be a director to matter to Kurt or a cameraman or lighting or any, basically anyone but you. Basically anybody involved in it, I guess, other than me. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was that old quote? I'd take a, I'd take a bullet for Tom and put one in Bruce, something like that. There you go. Um, as you guys are coming up with kind of categories for things that 
uh, Kurt could be good at to make this these series of Mr. Perfect vignettes. Who else kind of contributing to that list? Is it just Kurt saying, "Hey, I'm good at horseshoes"? It was all of us. It was it was talking to Kurt and seeing what he could do, and it was him basically saying, "Yeah, I can do all that shit. I'm excellent at everything." Did he say he was bad at anything? Did he say, "Oh, I can't do that"? Hell no. That's great. Uh, when he debuts, uh, he's billed as Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, uh, but eventually Kurt Henning would be dropped and he would just become Mr. Perfect. Bruce, is this just Vince so he can own the full name or what's the rationale here behind dropping the nickname, uh, and just making it the name? That's it. So that he can own it. He owned Mr. Perfect. He didn't own Kurt Henning. So that becomes more of an issue when he starts to think about just licensing things and, and realizing, Hey, why not? Just get my arms around it, so to speak. That was that was his philosophy with everything. So yeah, but it was what, simply you, so they could own it. Where is that born from, though? Was there an incident where he felt like he had invested a lot of money in a performer, and then they were able to kind of go make money with it somewhere else, and he thought, oh, "I'm not doing that again." You know, I think a lot of it came from when he started to produce music and write music and not have to pay for rights. He realized that if he owned everything, that people would pay him to use those intellectual properties and him not have to pay for rights to other people. They would be paying him. That makes sense. So it might, it's better to own it than rent it. Uh, Meltzer wrote that fans had little to no reaction to Mr. Perfect when he debuted. He says the WWF had assumed that just pushing that he was perfect would be enough to establish him as a heel, uh, but the vignettes didn't work quite as well as they did for DiBiase. Uh, do you remember there being somewhat lukewarm reactions to Kurt when he first debuted because the fans just kind of weren't sure? Are we supposed to hate him because he's good? Well, as usual, uh, Meltzer's only got half of the story because when you go back and you look at DiBiase, the DiBiase vignettes didn't necessarily work as planned either because what's not to like about a guy with a lot of money that gets shit done by paying people off? Not until we did the deal with the uh, little kid bouncing <laughs> the, basketball the basketball and kicked the kicked the ball away from him. Uh, he was a heel then. Woo! Then he became a heel. Kurt hadn't done anything dastardly yet. He hadn't done anything heelish. He was just a cocky, arrogant guy that was good at everything. So now that we're done shitting on Dave Meltzer, do you remember some lukewarm? I didn't shit on him. I simply told the truth. Something that he lacks sometimes. <sighs> Do you remember some lukewarm reactions and were you disappointed after all the work that had gone into these vignettes that he didn't get a stronger reaction one way or another? Well, he did. He did get a good reaction. He got a good reaction. It just wasn't a heel reaction. It wasn't the reaction that we had hoped for. And as I said, it's you sometimes when you envision the vignettes and you envision this grandiose plan and, oh my God, this is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, oh, shit, um, they didn't buy it. Or they like him, but they didn't hate him. Uh, he started with uh, short trunks like he wore in the AWA and then moved to a dual-colored singlet uh, that kind of became his signature. Uh, do you recall who had input on things like costuming for him at this time? That was him. Okay, That was all him. Uh, the gum slap became a trademark. People, uh, tweeted about that a lot this week, uh, spitting the gum out and slapping it away. 
Uh, and they say there's nothing original in wrestling, but was this unique to him or did he borrow this from somebody? As far as I know, it was unique to him and just something that Kurt liked to do. Uh, funny story that Lanice <laughs> jumped his shit because Joe, his son, Curtis Axel, got up in Little League and he gets up to bat one time and did the gum spit and slap right before he went up to bat. I love it. That's awesome. And and while Kurt is telling us this story, he saying goes, Yeah, he goes, you know, Lanice is hot. He goes, I thought it was the greatest thing I ever saw in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, so it's funny how moms think uh, you know, when when my son gets a yellow card in soccer, I'm like going, Way to go, Kane and my wife is burying her head and looking for an umbrella to put her head under. But uh-huh. yeah, moms and dads look at shit differently. Uh, talking about his moveset a little bit, where would you rank Kurt's dropkick? Oh my God. Textbook. Textbook. If you ever wanted to show somebody how to throw the perfect dropkick, you show them Kurt Hennig throwing a dropkick. Nail it every time. Kurt would use the, uh, fisherman's hook suplex as a finisher and it was called the perfect plex. And later the Hennig plex, uh, Kurt would credit the move to Harley race. Uh, Bruce, do you remember who was working with you guys to help come up with finishers and the name for stuff like that? Is that something you guys decide in a booking meeting or he just works out with the boys and brings you ideas or what does that process look like? Best of my recollection, the perfect plex was something that gorilla monsoon came up with and came up with the name. And how about this for a finish Okay, in a production meeting? And so you guys like it, and then you present it to Kurt? Exactly. Uh, Perfect was paired with the Genius briefly, and uh, he was at Kurt's side uh, for Kurt's Saturday night main event against Hogan. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Hogan stuff and and the Genius stuff in just a minute. But I'm just curious about this pairing, uh, because by and large, generally managers were used with guys who couldn't talk. But if Perfect was a good promo, why would you pair him with anybody, whether it was the genius or it was Henning or whoever it was? I know in Heenan's case, they had known each other since Kurt was a little kid from working with his dad, Larry. But I'm just curious from a WWF booking perspective, who thought of this pairing and why was it necessary? Well, I don't know who thought of it, but that was at a time when if you're a heel, you have to have a manager. Okay. Whether whether you could talk or not, you know, and that was also looked at the same thing with Kurt coming out, not necessarily getting a, a heel reaction. You got to have a strong heel manager with him. A hater. So, and, and the genius yeah. could be that. And, and in my head, both of these guys, you know, he to a lesser extent, but he was still doing it then. Uh, you could bump around with them. So if you're going to be Mr. Perfect and you're going to keep a perfect record, uh, then you've got to have a manager who can take some bumps for you. But that's just it me helps. as a fan, just freestyling. Yeah, it definitely helps. And Bobby Heenan gave him instant credibility as well. Uh, it's a little thing, but the towel throw to Heenan was something fun that he added to their pairing when they were together. Do you remember uh, ever filming and that not working out? No, not that I can remember. It's... Uh, if you remember, and I'm fast forwarding to the primetime days with Mr. Perfect, 
when he used to do the the finger the the pencil toss. Yeah, absolutely. And he would always hit it, hey. and he was just Mister Perfect. And that that pencil toss, which is in my notes too, because he did that whenever he was doing commentary, he would make it a point to do it, and then point the point right at the camera. Is that something you guys put in his ear, or he just wants to add it as a little? No, that was all Kurt stuff. That was just Kurt being Kurt. Uh, Mr. Perfect would face the Blue Blazer in what Meltzer described as a disappointing match at WrestleMania five. Um, do you think that this was a case of the nerves for both of these guys being on the big stage like this, or was there just no way they could possibly live up to maybe some unrealistic expectations that was, uh, you know, kind of everybody's expectation for this one? Well, I wouldn't put it in a disappointing category. I, I think that both Owen and Kurt were probably hyped up to nobody could live up to the hype right, right, right. at the time. So I know for Owen, it was especially challenging because those that were really plugging Owen for what, what he had done in Japan and in Calgary and coming in under the blue blazer, not wanting to have him be a heart at the time and all that other good crap. It was, there was no way that he could have lived up to the hype. Yeah. At that point. And then being in there with Kurt, I don't know if the styles just didn't mesh on that one night, but it was a decent match. It wasn't their best by far, but it was decent. So after uh, WrestleMania, Kurt is programmed with Owen's brother, Brett. And the idea here is to groom Kurt for a program with Hogan. Uh, so, of course, that means Kurt's supposed to be going over in all of his matches with Brett. And this was really the first singles push of Brett's career as well. And uh, he expressed disappointment that it seemed like, hey, now that I'm out on my own, I'm just putting him over. Uh, so then Kurt goes to the agents and tells them on their very first night together that he didn't want to beat Brett. So what they worked out was a 20-minute Broadway where Brett would ask for five more minutes, Henning would refuse, and then ambush Brett before Brett could mount a comeback. Uh, and that worked, and everyone loved it. And Kurt thought it got him way more heat than just beating him. And by the time their program was over, both Kurt and Brett were bigger stars. Uh, Bruce, can you confirm uh, that that was the plan for Kurt to work with Hogan? And how soon did you guys know that? I mean, did you know when you signed him, hey, we're going to heat him up for Hogan? Or when did that become something that you guys thought, here's where we're going? Well, well let's let's go back to the to the 20 minute match. Where, where did you get that horse shit? Uh, Bret Hart. Red Hart. Okay. Well, first of all, the idea was Pat Patterson's idea. Okay. Okay. And Pat thought that it was, he, Pat didn't want to beat Brett. And Pat thought that for all of those things, that it would be a better way to get more heat on perfect. Sure. Uh, with the 20 minute match. That was, that was Pat's idea. That was his, his match, his lane out. He loved both competitors and it was so it wasn't some kind gesture from kurt it was what an agent suggested yes okay exactly and uh in in particular pat patterson and the plan was for kurt to get groomed for hogan and look for a program to work with with perfect and hogan yes without a doubt uh what were you looking for in a heel when you were preparing for someone for a program with hogan i guess that's my question is you know that it seems like at this era the big money you know, clearly you're not going to take the Hogan spot. So the big money is to be the heel that Hogan faces. So everybody's kind of scrapping for that. 
But what did the WWF look for in a guy and say, oh, he could do it? And then how did you, quote, unquote, groom him for Hogan? You got to be larger than life, and you have to have a strong gimmick. I think the formula really for a lot of that time was you had to be that big, nasty heel. Yeah. Hogan loved monsters. Hogan loved overcoming the impossible. So the King Kong Bundys, the Andre the Giants, those types. But he also needed that strong character heel, a guy like DiBiase. In my opinion, a guy like uh, Perfect. Yeah. So you you really just had to have a strong personality to work that program with Hogan and hopefully get longevity out of it. So I'm just curious when he asked a minute ago, who wrote that, who, who gave me that? And I said, Bret Hart, if I would have said Dave Meltzer, what would your reaction have been? The same as my reaction was. It just, no one who gave you that shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, Brett says their first match together. Uh, he and Henning was what he called a quote stinkeroo. Uh, because they were both way off, the crowd was flat. They had messed up some spots. They just couldn't get it going. Uh, and afterwards, they both kind of doubted the other one. Uh, and then the second time out, it was better. And before you know it, they had it all worked out, and they had put together a phenomenal match that they pretty much did the same spots on almost identical uh, for about a year and a half from there all the way until SummerSlam 1991. Uh, Bruce, I know you know we'll get to SummerSlam 91. Uh, and you, I know you weren't there for that, but what was it about their matches that you did see and these guys working together? What was it about their chemistry that made them so special? God, they were just magical together. And then let me say this too, that I thought that the program with Brett and Sean, I'm Brett and Sean, well, same thing, Brett and Sean too, but Brett and Kurt, they were magical together. And both of them could work with a broomstick. So to have another equally talented performer to work with, I thought that every night those two guys just made magic. And I don't know if I saw their first match and whether or not it was a stinkeroo. I would find it hard to believe because Brett was the type of talent that he wasn't going to leave the ring until he got that crowd and he got his match out of you. Yeah. So, and, and Kurt in a lot of respects was, was the same way. So you put two guys with that kind of an ego and that, that kind of a work ethic in the ring together. I, I find it hard for them to have a stinkeroo. Even their worst is better than most guys. Best on television. Of course, Mr. Perfect was undefeated, uh, but he was doing these draws with Brett on the house shows. Uh, so they would continue to say he had a perfect record, even though there wasn't technically a loss. It wasn't a win either. Uh, Mr. Perfect would pin Bret Hart on the November 6th, 1989 edition of primetime wrestling. Of course he would cheat to win. Uh, but this was seen as a major step to build him for Hogan because now they had, uh, this, this, uh, war on a televised match and Meltzer believes it was Kurt's match with Brett in Sacramento that really made Hogan take notice and believe that Kurt was ready. Uh, so we fast forward to the November 25th edition of Saturday night's main event and that was filmed actually on Halloween night. Uh, the genius wins a count out victory over Hulk Hogan with some help from Mr. Perfect. I'm going to read that again. Uh, the genius wins a count out victory over Hogan with some help from perfect. Uh, and after the match, perfect stole Hulk Hogan's belt and ran off. 
Uh, later during the backstage interview segment with Mean Gene Okerlund, Mr. Perfect took a hammer and shattered Hulk Hogan's world title with it. Many folks believe uh, that this belt later would become the hardcore title for Mick Foley, but that's not true. Uh, WWF ring announcer Mel Phillips actually got the pieces. Bruce, talk us through this particular angle, uh, because this is one that's pretty memorable. Uh, you guys were getting these belts made by Reggie Parks at the time, and this was pretty innovative to smash a belt on TV with a hammer, was it not? That's what's memorable to, memorable to you about this whole angle? Well, obviously, the, the idea of the genius got a win over Hulk Hogan on Saturday night's main event is pretty damn memorable. The idea that the genius sold out Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> Oh my gosh. How money is that there? You know, there, there was a bet in the office and the event said, Oh my God, I bet you I, the genius could sell out. And, um, and this is a did. joke. This is a joke about how fucking over Hulk Hogan was, right? Well, but it, didn't it was, matter. it was no, it was in Vince's eyes. It was how over the genius was. And he made the bet that I bet you the genius could sell out. So it wasn't, he can even do it with the genius. It's, Hey, you guys are it sleeping was, on the, the genius. genius can sell out. Wow. Yes. So people, in, doubt, so yeah, who, people doubted that. Well, he was right. I don't know. Technically. Um, so now we know whose idea it was to have genius go ahead and, uh, and be in the angle, but talk me through. Beating this belt to shit with a hammer, man. That's memorable. Talk me through whose idea this was. And, um, I mean, did you guys just have like stacks of these damn belts laying around in the back? Oh, here you go, Hulk. Here's another <laughs> one. No, they, they didn't. We had a few backups for, for if they got messed up, but no, it was, it was different at the time. It was first time, only time that I can ever remember something like that happening. Yeah. So it was pretty innovative at the time. And something that was unique. So, you know, perfect got to do it. And it was a way to pretty much kickstart the whole Mr. Perfect Hulk Hogan issue. It's, I find it funny too, that, uh, you know, the only other time I can think of a belt being disgraced like this, it also involves Hulk Hogan. He's spray painting NWO on the big gold belt in WCW. And I know there were incidents where, you know, people would throw a, a belt off a bridge like stone cold or whatever, but I don't know. That little piece of trivia was fascinating to me. Uh, of course, this is a hot angle. So uh, Hogan starts working with Henning on the house shows. And Hogan would pin uh, Henning on the house show loop. But Perfect's losses were never acknowledged on television. Do you remember there being any sort of debate? Obviously, this is way pre-internet. But do you remember there being any sort of debate that, well, hey, if we're saying he's perfect, we can't just fucking bait him to death on the loop? Or is it, well, this is what we got him for, to bait him? Hogan must pose. Um, they're really, no, they're not as much debate uh, at all, really. You're talking about a time where even in the territory days, when if you had a championship, that championship would change hands. Okay, let's say that it in Memphis, let's use Memphis, Tennessee as an example. Uh, if they switch the title in Memphis on Monday night, and that made it to TV the next Saturday. Well, then 
you were still champion on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday in whatever towns you were in. And then the next week, you you obviously, if that aired on Saturday, you would lose the title on Saturday in whatever town that the television aired in. But if you're in Nashville, they didn't get that t- that tape until a week later. So if you lost the title in Memphis on Monday and it aired on Saturday in Memphis, but you had a show Saturday night in Nashville, you hadn't lost that championship yet in Nashville. So you would be the champion and you wouldn't lose it until a week later. Sometimes they would do the title switches in every town. How crazy is that to think about in 2016? Yeah, well, they didn't they didn't have people uh with their Google machines and and internet and Podcasts. what have you out there. Yeah. They didn't have yeah. brother love on the internet telling half a million people how the sausage is made. There you go. Uh so the 1990 uh, kill somebody. The 19- talk about Memphis like that motherfucker. I'll kill you. Midnight Express when they won the title, they won it. Motherfucker. What? This is our life now. Yes, uh, it is. It's sad. The, <laughs> the nineteen ninety Royal Rumble came down to uh, Hulk Hogan and Mr. Perfect as the final two. Uh we hadn't really talked about it yet, but how did Hogan feel about working with Kurt? I loved it. Didn't have to do anything. Yeah, there Kurt you go. did all the work. Uh who was campaigning for Kurt to be the final man in the match with Hogan? Well, th- at the time it was simply you know the hot heel with the hot baby face so it was just logical okay uh so perfect main event of the january 27th 1990 edition of saturday night's main event he would tag with the genius to take on the ultimate warrior and hulk hogan uh the match was actually taped in chattanooga on january 3rd and Meltzer described the match as a quote one man show in the ring uh hogan and warrior were teaming just before the wrestlemania six match and uh, this Saturday night's main event would draw the fifth largest television audience to ever watch a match in the United States, scoring an 11.1 rating. Uh, Bruce, when the rating comes back, does Kurt's in-ring performance get any credit, or does everybody just see it as, this is Hogan and Warrior who drew this for us? It was the two biggest baby faces in the history of the business at that point in time. Yeah, it was Hogan Warrior. Yeah. Um, do you remember any, any details or any feedback or were you in gorilla when this match is happening? Uh, Kurt puts on quite a performance for himself in his first real main event position here. I'm just curious what your thoughts were about the match or Vince's. Uh, I, I would have to say that the one man show is an accurate description. Um, Kurt Hennig is a bump machine and having, two monster baby faces like Hulk and warrior in there to bump all over the place for it just made his skill shine through. Uh, perfect. But again, headline Saturday night's main event on April 28th, 1990. Uh, this one was from Austin, Texas, uh, losing to Hogan, uh, in just under eight minutes. Um, so that kind of ends his big run in the main event spot, at least of the Hogan era, but let's kind of dig into why, uh, on January 15th, 1990, Mr. Perfect headline against Hulk Hogan at Madison square garden. And they drew the smallest crown for a Hogan title defense up to that point with only 11,500 tickets sold. Uh, perfect. would get another shot 
Uh, to headline there at MSG with his manager this time, the genius, and they tagged against Brutus Beefcake and Hulk Hogan. That time, they only drew 13,800. So they're not, he's not drawing really well as the top heel, uh, at least in the premier market. Do you remember these shows? I remember the time period, the specific shows in particular, not really, but I do remember the time it, it had kind of run its course. And we were also fighting at this time that a little bit of Hogan backlash. Yeah, I get it. It was during the time that we had pretty much shoved Hulk down their throat for so long that people were starting to throw him back up a little bit. Uh, 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 uh. Easy now. Uh, they did a handicap match with perfect and genius against Hulk Hogan in Los Angeles at the sports arena. That was also a disappointment at the gate. Uh, if you're wondering, Mr. Perfect lost a match. This is his first loss on television here to the ultimate warrior at MSG a week before WrestleMania six, but it didn't actually air until after WrestleMania. So perfect's first televised loss is at WrestleMania six in Toronto. Uh, against Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Is this a fucking rib? No, you know, it's simply a case of if you're going to look at where the, where the issue is, what what didn't they buy? Well, goddamn, they've always, uh, Hulk is always drawn. Okay. So what's different in the equation? Perfect. So if you're asking me my opinion, my opinion is, is that Kurt was the scapegoat. Kurt was the partner when the downturn started turning downward. Let me freestyle this for you. Meltzer's theory was that even though Kurt was arguably the best wrestler in the company, him selling so much made everyone else look so good that then people didn't believe he had the ability to beat the quote unquote superheroes. Is that a fair critique? Not really. I, I think that Kurt, no, I, I, I don't agree with it because I think that Kurt was able to be that heel and be that dastardly son of a bitch when he needed to be. And I think it was a combination of, you know, people were at, at that time, they were getting a little sick of Hogan all the time and they wanted somebody else. They so badly wanted somebody. Here, here's my question, I guess. To beat him. You know, you've got a guy who you've had a main event position now for a couple of MSG shows. He's main evented a couple of Saturday night main events or not main evented two, but he, he main evented one and he had a hot angle with Hogan in another. He's in the Royal rumble as the next to last man, the final guy eliminated by Hulk Hogan down to the last two. And the decision is made. Okay. He's been here for a couple of years now. We're going to beat him. Who should we get to beat him? I know Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. I'm just curious how Brutus becomes the one to end the perfect record. It feels like this is a favor. Oh God, I couldn't answer that. I, I don't agree with it. You don't agree so, with what? I don't agree with beefcake being the guy to end the perfect record it by makes, any stretch of the imagination. The, your, your most recent pay-per-view, the Royal rumble. He's on top with Hogan, like the very last two. And now fast forward your next pay-per-view 
He's losing to Brutus the fucking barber. Like, that's his first loss? That should have been Hogan, should it not? I would think so, yeah. I would I would say either Hogan or Warrior, one of the two. Well, they got it right the next week. You know, you could argue whatever you want about the Ultimate Warrior. The Warrior after WrestleMania 6 was the champ. And so that's when their match aired and uh, Perfect lost to Warrior uh, in a match that was filmed at MSG. Uh, let's keep talking about Perfect as a draw, though. Uh, Mr. Perfect versus uh, the Texas Tornado for the Intercontinental Championship was the main event of Madison Square Garden on October 19th, 1990, and it only drew 5,500 fans. This was, at the time, the company's worst crowd in its premier arena in over 21 years. I mean, I'm just fascinated by this because I think more people than ever are going to listen to this podcast because we got so many tweets. He dominated the poll. He's so beloved. People love the Mr. Perfect character. But man, he's not drawing for shit. That's that's really strange to me. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, it, it's the reality of it. And you look at look look at that card for a minute. Perfect versus tornado, and I don't know what was underneath it, but you have your two biggest drawing guys. Hogan and Warrior, neither one of them are on that card. And I guarantee you surrounding that, uh, there was always one or the other. And while I say that they were probably regurgitating Hulk a little bit at that point in time, that he still would have drawn better than that had he been on the card with anybody. Genius, even. So, it's, yeah, it's a tough one. You had two guys that, that were not the top dogs. You didn't have either one of the, the two top guys in the company on the card in Madison Square Garden, in your premier network, in the largest market in the world. So that's tough. And, and But you're right. It, it didn't draw. And it makes you kind of scratch your head and go, well, maybe. Here, here's the rest of the show um, that we're talking about. Uh, Shane Douglas pinned the Brooklyn Brawler. Uh, the Warlord pinned Coco Beware. Uh, Mr. Perfect and Kerry Von Erich went to a double countout. Iron Mike Sharp pinned SD Jones. Ted DiBiase beat Dusty Rhodes. Davey Boy Smith beat Haku. Tugboat beat Dino Bravo. And the tag team championship was on the line when Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart successfully defended against Rhythm and, Bru- Rhythm and Blues, Greg Valentine, and the Honky Tonk Man. What a shitty fucking card. Yeah. I mean, goddamn. Yeah, that's a horrible card. You got to wonder what, what the hell the, the A-Town was uh, and where. <laughs> it's MSG. When is MSG not the I A-Town? Know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm thinking, what the hell's an A-Town over the garden in Manhattan? Uh, that's scary. It's worth mentioning that... <laughs> Meltzer reports 5,500. The WWF reported 9,000. Well, yeah, well, I'd, I'd go the 9,000. <laughs> either way, I, I can't believe you. Either could, way, it's a shit. Yeah, either way. Either, either way. way, it's half a house. Um, On yeah. the high side, that's half a house. No, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, Kurt would get another shot to headline with the Ultimate Warrior, uh, where he got way more out of the Ultimate Warrior and maybe anybody ever 
but he also drew even less. Meltzer reported that his series of matches with the Warrior were drawing so poorly that it was one of the reasons Vince decided that Warrior is champion and that whole experiment wasn't working. Do you remember the decision to get the belt off of the Warrior, and was it solely based on ticket sales? It was it was based on a lot of things. It was based on his attitude. It was based on ticket sales. It was based on merchandise. And as much as, you know, it's a double-edged sword. As much as people were, were regurgitating Hulk, when we took him, took Hulk away from him, what do they want? I don't want him anymore. I don't want him anymore. Enough Hulk. Okay, no more Hulk for you. What's the first thing they do? We want Hulk. Where's Hulk? We, Why don't we have Hulk? We want Hulk. Why aren't you giving us more Hulk? We want Hulk. How dare you take Hulk? We don't want this warrior shit. So warrior had a lot working against him. And then going out there and warrior could really only have one type of match. Now I, I do agree. Okay. Mark this down folks, wherever the hell we are in this podcast, I would agree with Meltzer on this, that Kurt Hennig probably gave warrior the best matches of his career. Yeah. That's hard. And, and made warrior look like a million bucks. But by, by that time, like you said, if warrior had been the first one to get the bloom off the rose, beating Mr. Perfect and not Brutus beefcake, that might might have made a difference too. Yeah, it just seems weird to me that, you know, he's not main eventing pay-per-views around this time because it seems like he's got heat. It seems like he's a hell of a performer, well-liked by his peers. But for whatever reason, whenever they try him on house shows and big events and television specials, it just doesn't work. Uh, let's backtrack a little bit to WrestleMania six. Uh, when warrior was the intercontinental champion and won the world title, he had to vacate the intercontinental. So the WWF held the tournament, Mr. Perfect with Bobby Hannon by his side would go on to pin Tito Santana, a former intercontinental champion himself on April 23rd, 1990 in Austin, Texas. That match would air on superstars of wrestling on May 19th, 1990, uh, for this to happen after he's coming off a loss at WrestleMania six and not being the top draw, so to speak, that they wanted him to be at the box office. He had to have what I would call a champion in the office who would have been someone campaigning for Kurt and saying, Hey, let's not just throw him to the wolves just yet. We can still do something. Maybe not at the world title level, but here, do you remember who had that sentiment in the office? Everybody did. Vince loved Kurt. Pat loved Kurt. I love Kurt. JJ. I mean, everybody loved Kurt. How could you not? Yeah. Great personality, great guy, and could do anything in the ring. At this point, Tito Santana's on the twilight of his career. Is that fair to say? I would say this was probably the down. Yeah. The downside of, of Tito's career, but he, he was another one that, uh, could do it all. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so perfect was scheduled to lose the title to once again, Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake at SummerSlam. Uh, but beefcake suffered severe injuries in a parasailing accident on July 4th, 1990. Uh, Bruce, what do you remember about the accident that you can share with us? Because this is one of those wrestling legend things. Well, the beefcake was in the surf and they were taking girls out, out on the boat on the parasail and 
girl was running along the beach and she got up in the water and beefcake was there to try and I guess either hoist her up or whatever the hell he was doing. But she had already caught air and her knees came right in his face and caved his face in. And they had, um, they tell stories. The paramedic tells stories about having to stick his hand in beefcake's mouth and hold his mouth open so that he could breathe because his face had caved in and his, uh, orbital, everything, his sinuses, all that, it all caved in. Mm. It was ugly. That's, they had to re they had to rebuild his, his skull and his face. That's a surprise. He survived that. It's, uh, very surprising. And they, they didn't know if he was going to survive right away. Well, I'm glad he did. I know we had some fun talking about him beating Mr. Perfect, but you don't want to see that happen to anybody. Uh, so instead uh, of losing it to Brutus the Barber Beefcake, he would lose it to the Texas Tornado on that same SummerSlam 1990 show. Uh, it wasn't a very good match, only around five minutes. Uh, and Kerry wasn't drawing on the house show loops either. So Perfect got it back on November 19th, this time in Rochester, New York, when DiBiase hit Kerry with the belt. And that set up a perfect Piper program. You know, we haven't talked about him a whole bunch here on the show. So let's drill in a little bit, Bruce. Why do you think Kerry was deemed a failure in the WWF? He just, he wasn't the same Kerry Von Erich that he was prior to his motorcycle accident where Kerry lost his foot. And the idea of bringing Kerry in in the first place was to tell the story. And it was a great story that Kerry had suffered this motorcycle accident, had lost his foot and he overcame and it. was, and he overcame it and Kerry was uncomfortable with it. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I would venture to guess that Fritz sure as hell didn't want Kerry to tell that story. Um, so we brought Kerry in as, is Kerry Von Eric, you know, and, and he wasn't anymore. He wasn't the Kerry Von Eric that had captivated Texas and won the hearts of people all over the world and became NWA world heavyweight champion, beating flair. It, it wasn't the same guy. And he still had the charisma. He was still carry, but I think that Vince had in his head to bring him in and tell this great story of overcoming hardship that that would make him a megastar. And people just didn't, didn't buy into him. How bad was his drug situation when he was with the WWF? I don't really know. Um, Do you remember any sort of reprimands or meetings or conversations where Kerry, you got to get your shit together? No, I really don't. At least during the time that I was there, Kerry was pretty damn clear headed. And I had dealt with Kerry on the other side when Kerry wasn't always the most clear headed. So during his run, it, WWF, it was during a time that he was on the straight and narrow. Now I know that he, I know he was dabbling. I know he was still participating. Um, but he wasn't, he wasn't incoherent. I never saw him messed up going to the ring. He kept it between the lines. Yes, he did. And I, I never saw, I never ever remotely saw Carrie in a bad way in WWF. Like I, I had seen him before he came in. So let's talk about uh, Kurt's next big program before he gets to the Bret Hart series that will culminate at SummerSlam. 
uh, he's, he was briefly worked with the big boss man. And, uh, those guys went on to become real life, best of friends. And the two worked together at WrestleMania seven in Los Angeles, which is available for download in the archives. If you're a WrestleMania seven fan, I would like to hear more about this match in particular. Uh, ultimately the Heenan family would cost, uh, Kurt the match when they interfered. Why do you think, you know, we've talked about the match before. Why do you think Ray trailer and Kurt Henning hit it off so well? Well, they both love country music. Spend my and yeah, I, uh, well, Ray Trailer is the kind of guy that was hard not to like. Right. He's just a big old country boy from Cobb County, Georgia, and Kurt was just a good old boy from Robbinsdale, Minnesota, and they shared the same likes and they enjoyed traveling together, drinking beer and hanging out. So when you get two guys that are really good friends behind the scenes and you put them in the ring together and they both got their working shoes on, then uh, you're normally going to have some great matches. So a month after he um, finishes boss man's, you know, does the boss man deal at WrestleMania seven perfect wins, a 20 man battle Royal on Saturday night's main event. So he's still being featured very prominently. And uh, Jim Ross uh, said on the perfect DVD that the WWE released, that around this time, it was common that the world champion would be considered the top guy because he was the top ticket seller or merch seller, but that the intercontinental champion was generally regarded as being the best wrestler on the roster. And I'm curious, Bruce, how long do you think that had been the case? And is there a guy in your mind that signifies when the IC champion became quote unquote, the worker belt, so to speak? Well, I think the IC championship, especially back in the day, always had great workers from Ted DiBiase to Pat Patterson being the inaugural champion, winning that championship in Rio, Rio de, de Janeiro. Janeiro. Yeah. And a shoot. Yeah. It was a shoot too. Oh yeah. It was a shoot. It was a hell of a tournament too. Um, all the, all, all the major names were there from all over the world. Um, so in they, Portugal. They were sold out hanging from the rafters. If I remember without, yeah, without a doubt, it was. Michael Hayes said he believed that uh, Kurt made the belt mean more than before he had it. Do you think that's a fair statement? There's a saying in the business uh, about uh, belts making the guy or guy making the belt. Do you think that Kurt helped make the IC belt? I think that Kurt was a great champion. Yeah, without a doubt. I think that he he made it a wrestling championship. Um, the WWE has said that Kurt was one of the top five guys to ever hold the intercontinental belt. And I didn't know this as a bit of trivia. He's the longest reigning intercontinental champion of the 1990s. Did you know that? I did not know that. I held it a long time. Uh, Bruce, I want to touch on coach too. And I know you weren't there for most of this, but it's my idea. A lot of younger fans may not realize who played coach and what his history was. Can you kind of catch everybody up? Coach was uh, John Tolis, and John Tolis was um, one half of the Golden Greeks, John and Chris Tolis. And John was a huge, huge star in L.A. and everywhere that he went. Uh, tremendous worker, old-timer, tough guy. And Tolis and the whole coach gimmick was an idea that I'd pitched about that time to bring in not a manager, not a valet, but a coach. Right. And the coach was brought in to make perfect 
um, to, to make him more perfect and to bring the perfect back to, to Kurt Hennig, if you will. And um, I left before that could actually be realized, but I, I am the one that pitched that originally. So on the two reigns that he had as Intercontinental Champion, uh, when he won the tournament beating Tito, he carried it 126 days before losing it to the Texas Tornado, who held it for 84 days. And then he would uh, carry it 280 days uh, after that. So uh, quite the run. Uh, and back in these days, title changes were usually planned months in advance. Is that fair to say, Bruce? Well, for the most part, yeah. So it's it's a little different than now where sometimes guys, you know, find out the afternoon of the show a lot of times that they're going to be a title change that night. So um, does the creative team sometimes. There you go. So about nine weeks uh, before he's scheduled to lose the belt, meaning everybody's kind of in the loop on this, uh, that he's going to drop the Intercontinental title to Brett at SummerSlam 91. About nine weeks out from that, Kurt hurts his back in late June 91. And uh, Bruce, he blamed the injury on taking a whip into the turnbuckles uh, that weren't properly aligned. And he says that's what caused his back to go out. He already had bad knees, but now he suffered a broken tailbone along with a bulging disc in his lower back. And uh, he was set to be out for an indefinite period of time. So, Bruce, I've never wrestled, obviously. So tell me how likely this turnbuckles not being aligned story could be. Well, um, I don't really know. Uh, it could happen. Yeah, it could definitely happen because that's where you're going to take the uh, most most of the bump is on that middle turnbuckle. That's where your tailbone's going to hit. That's where your back is. Most guys are going to hit uh, those top two turnbuckles. So it being kind of out of whack could could definitely throw you off. Do you remember hearing word of this injury at the time? I know you weren't with the company. Um, but do you remember hearing about it or was this something you call and check on somebody or? Yeah, I, I do remember hearing about it. I just heard that, that Kurt had a back injury and was looking to take some time off, which is why they were getting to the, uh, SummerSlam match. Do you know if there was, and again, I know you weren't there, but do you know if there was a plan B at the time or did everyone just assume he'd be able to work through it? No, I never heard that there was any fear whatsoever that he wouldn't be able to make it to SummerSlam. The The only thing that I heard, and this is, of course, secondhand, was that Kurt had hurt his back and he was going to take some time off after SummerSlam and drop the title to Brett. Um, let's, let's run through this. Meltzer wrote, McMahon, who a few years earlier had literally had Dynamite Kid go to the ring in a wheelchair so the tag titles would be dropped in the ring, insisted to Henning that he come back for the pay-per-view match because in those days he had the attitude that titles had to at all costs change hands inside the ring. McMahon told Henning that he could do a one- or two-minute match if he had to. He just wanted Hart to get the win inside the ring as opposed to Henning forfeiting the title, end quote. Bruce, do you remember this uh, Bulldog match that Meltzer makes mention of here? Well, first of all, Bulldog didn't go to the ring in a wheelchair. He went to the ring on Davy Boy's back. And the uh, situation with Kurt, I, I wasn't there, so I, and I wasn't there for Bulldogs either. But I do know, you know, Vince has, in the past, guys hurt. Obviously, he's, he's like, well, do whatever we've got to do to get it off of them and, and never insisted that anybody work if they were unable to work. 
And knowing Kurt, I could see, and, and again, this is my opinion only. Right. I could see Kurt, I could see Kurt say, no, I can get through it. Let me do it. So I, I don't know what, I don't know specifically what happened. I have no idea what, wasn't there when Kurt got hurt, wasn't there when they asked him to go in the ring and have the match. I do know that the match was one of the best I've ever seen. Can you confirm that this was Vince's thinking about dropping belts? Like this was his attitude. It had to happen in the ring. No, not if the guy couldn't go. No. And you know, in, in particular with, with the bulldogs, the uh, uh, dynamite never got in the ring okay. and it was all Davy boy, but he had, you know, he had Davy carry him out. And also knowing the bulldogs, I could see dynamite and Davy saying, no, let me just carry me to the ring. The so, guys have pride, the guys have pride and, and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to have to go out and say, I'm hurt. They don't want to say that. They don't want to say that for a lot of reasons. They don't want to miss work. They don't want to miss a payday. They never want to admit they're hurt. And as a promoter and, and being with Vince, you know, we've had to do a lot of things where we hurt guys backstage, go out and like I said, have, have a 30 second match right? where no one gets hurt, get it off of them. Um, it's not ideal, but you don't want to put anybody in a situation where they could get hurt worse. Uh, Kurt was advertised for shows between, uh, the injury and SummerSlam, but only worked the TV tapings at the end of July. Uh, he won one match by count out because he couldn't rotate his body for the perfect plex. And he won another match in 30 seconds. So fast forward now, August 26, 1991 and, uh, SummerSlam is generally regarded as perfect's best WWF match. And one of the best intercontinental matches of all time. Uh, so if this was going to be Kurt's last match, man, he was going out with a bang. Uh, they went over 18 minutes before he submitted to Bret Hart's sharpshooter, which got over both Bret and the move in a big way. And a lot of folks thought it was the best WWF match since Steamboat Savage at WrestleMania three back in 87. Uh, Bret would say they had their best match in Anchorage, but he thought that, uh, Kurt would say that their match in Sacramento was the best. Uh, Brett once said he was among the best pure workers ever. He won't be remembered as the biggest draw or the most exciting personality, but maybe he was the best when it comes to being a guy you could wrestle where everything looks snug. He would take great bumps to make you look good, but he was as light as a feather. He said that when Henning would stomp on his chest, it looked like he was kicking the hell out of him, but it felt like somebody had just dropped a grape on his chest. Bruce, do you ever, uh, did you ever have any in ring, uh, any ring stuff with Kurt when you were brother love? I did not, but I think everybody would share the same sentiments as Bret Hart. Everybody loved working with Kurt. He made it look like it hurt like hell and never felt him. So at this point, Kurt was advised to have major back surgery or perhaps even spinal fusion. Uh, he never had the surgery, uh, in the end. Uh, he would go on to replace Heenan, who wanted off the road for his neck problems, and he would assume Ric Flair's quote-unquote executive consultant role. Um, and I know you were gone when most of this happened, but again, I'm just curious. Help me understand the pairing. It was fun, and we enjoy it, but doesn't conventional wisdom say that, hey, this guy can talk. This isn't necessary. I know we said a minute ago with a Bobby Heenan or... You know, with the genius, you need a heater who can, you know, get you some heat and take some bumps. Flair knows how to get heat, and Flair will bump himself, and Kurt can't bump. So talk me through this pairing. Well, again, I wasn't there, but I'll, I'll 
give you a little story and some insight to what else was taking place. When Flair came in and he was put with Bobby Heenan, he was put by put with Bobby Heenan as a mouthpiece to to get Flair over before Flair could actually come in. Right. Okay. If you remember, we had the, the, the big gold belt and everything, and Bobby Heenan being able to talk for Flair before Flair could actually speak for himself. Right. 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 So, <clears throat> of course, the idea being that. Of course, all heels have to have a manager, and Flair being a top guy would have to have the top manager, and that being Bobby Heenan. So when Rick came in, they wanted Bobby to make the towns with him and, and travel, go back out on the road, which Bobby was not that fond of. <laughs> I understand why. Okay, Bobby had, uh, at the time, been having a great life, being able to be a broadcaster, go in the studio, not have to make the towns, not have to take bumps, and be home with his family. So all of a sudden now he's put back out on the road. Staying up till 2 o'clock after in night, the morning. Drinking and like being on the road with Ric Flair. Yeah. 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 So his, uh, his liver started to tap out. Check liver and, line was on. Yeah. And Bobby, Bobby was ready to... Just move the hell on. He he didn't want to be on the road with Flair anymore. So a phone call was made. Uh, there was a, a fat kid in Houston, Texas, who was out of work, who had a reputation for being a big mouth and, and a somewhat decent talker, um, could take a hell of an ass whooping, and he was looking for a gig. He was looking for a job. And that's how Dr. Tom came in? And... Uh, Easy tiger. <laughs> and at the time, Bobby was, was red hot. And this, this young, good looking, uh, young man, uh, had been mistaken for Bobby Heenan's son from time to time. And the idea was pitched to introduce Bobby Heenan jr. And the idea was pitched. It was kind of given a, uh, a green light for a time. We were scheduled to do vignettes at Bobby's home in Tampa. And next thing I know, I get a phone call from, uh, Oh, by the way, that young, good looking stripping heel that could talk and take an ass whooping was me. And I was going to bleach my hair, platinum blonde, like get it cut just like Bobby's have the little wrestling ring and wear all of Bobby's old stuff and, you know, use the same BH stuff. And I get a phone call and it's Vince and he says, yeah, uh, we're, we're not going to do the Bobby Heenan Jr. stuff. That, that's a horrible idea. So it had gone from a great idea to let's do vignettes. Let's get him in. Let's do this to, yeah, we're not going to do that. It's a horrible idea. And I was back on the unemployment line and wondering what the hell am I going to do next? And I flew to Hong Kong. But so now they were in, they, they had a dilemma because Bobby didn't want to be on the road and they needed somebody to be with flair. Perfect was under contract and couldn't work. So let's give him something to do. Let's give him something to do. Let's put him with flair. And, it, and you know, it was, it was a good match. And a way to get Kurt back out in front of the people, use Mr. Perfect, and 
Bob, get him get him working again. Bobby Heenan Jr. Bobby Heenan Jr., yeah. What could have been? Uh, Kurt would receive a huge settlement from Lloyd's of London Insurance claiming a career-ending back injury. Uh, this effectively allowed him to kind of, I guess you'd say, double dip, so to speak, because he was able to take a gig managing Rick or doing commentary or whatever uh, and still receive payment from this settlement. So he had two income opportunities. Uh, Bruce, we're going to talk about Lloyd's of London pretty much from here on out on the Kurt Henning story. Uh, but let's talk about the injury and Lloyd's of London and what it meant to the boys at the time, because we, as fans, we have heard about Lloyd's of London and wrestlers for a long, long time. Well, Lloyd's of London was simply a, an executive policy that, that paid out huge and, and you paid big premiums to get the policy. And if something were to happen, a career ending injury, you know, they paid out huge too. And Kurt had invested in one of these flair had one, um, the road warriors had them. Rick rude had them. A lot of the Minnesota guys, they all, I believe they all had the same agent as well, but Kurt did have a legitimate back injury that paid out. And part of the deal with being flares advisor, whatever the hell they called them at the time was Kurt didn't take any bumps. So he could, he could be out there. He could be at the ring and he could do stuff, but Kurt wasn't taking bumps. So that allowed him to realize his Lloyd's of London, but also continue to go out on the road and work with Rick. But, uh, he didn't violate anything with Lloyd's of London because he never took any bumps. When did you first start hearing about Lloyd's of London being a good scam for the boys? Well, I heard the Lloyd's of London, gosh, um, uh, pretty much around maybe 87, 88 is that, you know, guys were going out and buying Lloyd's of London policies and Kurt was the first that I can recollect that actually used it. I know, uh, Rick Rude, Joe Laurinaitis, Rick yeah. Rude, a lot of guys um, from Minnesota did. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of guys from Minnesota did. It's like they had a little secret meeting in Minnesota and said, hey, we're going to buy these injuries. Well, but, you know, the thing is, is they were legitimate injuries. They... Yeah, I'm not arguing that, but let's let's continue. In late 92, uh, when two of the company's top four baby faces, the Ultimate Warrior and the British Bulldog, were both fired for HGH. And this happens at a time when the company's really cracking down on steroids. They're about to be on trial. Uh, Vince uh, convinced Kurt to come out of retirement. And do it as a baby face. Uh, before we talk about that, let's talk about HGH and this incident with Warrior and Bulldog. Uh, you were back here by this point. Uh, when did you find out? Uh, when did you know what HGH was? And when did you find out about this incident with Warrior and Bulldog? And how did that go over with Vince McMahon? Well, HGH was something, the human growth hormone. It was not a steroid. It was allegedly uh we, quote, we, natural we know what it is but I, I guess the question is when well it's not you, a steroid you said the steroid stuff and i'm just clarifying it's not a steroid why were they fired bruce because they violated a policy what was the policy i don't even recall at that time well, no um you're fucking it was, with me i am fucking with you no they they were fired because they admitted to violating the policy and 
So the company's cracking Vince, down on steroids. Vince, basic, Vince basically false. had his hands tied, and they said, hey, you know. Um, How did they get called? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. But, uh, again, I, I don't really want to discuss that. All because that, that all was, that's public private. record. People can throw it in their Google machine. Yeah. Why don't you just tell us the story? Okay. Well, no, they admitted to it. They admitted to it. They had it sent to their house, and they admitted to doing it. Warrior admitted to it. And when when they admit to it, does Vince on the phone right then say, got to let you go? He had no choice. Yeah. So is there a big stink written? What does he turn around when he hangs the phone up? Are you and Pat there? Does he turn around and say, <laughs> well, here's what we're doing. I'll now. tell you where we were. I'll tell you where we were. We were in Boca Raton at his house in Boca. And we went to the pancake house. And he told us that, uh, that he had to let Warrior go. And... I don't remember if he even told us about, yeah, he told us about both of them it's at the same time. We had breakfast at the pancake house and let us know. And we just kind of looked at each other like, what the fuck? We got Survivor Series coming up and it's, what do we do now? And he looked at a talent roster and started looking at names. You know, you got Savage and well, Savage is already in the match and, and there wasn't a lot of star power to to fill in the blank. I believe it was Warrior and Savage against Flair and um who? Flair and Razor. Yeah. And we just went back and forth and into what the hell do we do? And and I don't even recall because it was such a a whirlwind week of damn, what do we do now? Um, I couldn't tell you whose idea it was, but the idea came up. What about perfect? Okay. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that. The subject. But is it viewed as like this somber thing that warriors out? I mean, bulldog is what it is. And I know everybody would like to have him on the roster, but warrior had been one of the top guys like tippy top and now he's gone kind of abruptly you guys have all this tv laid out are you and pat shitting your pants at this point that'd be accurate yeah <laughs> okay um so was it just common in the locker room at this point that hey man they're testing for steroids but there's no real adequate testing for hgh so here's the workaround probably some guys thought that yeah i again i went in the dressing rooms and it and at that time i had just come back so i was about as far removed from from H that as you could get have you ever used hgh personally nope do you know anybody Never who used has? steroids uh probably do but i couldn't tell you off the top of my head i knew warrior i knew bulldog <laughs> <laughs> so, so the work but but that i sat there and discussed about hgh no never not my bag i'm not trying to drill you on it here's the thing i don't even think uh, it's a whole nother show, but HCH isn't nearly the monster that I think some people make it out to be. Obviously, you know, too much of anything, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, I, I don't think steroids are bad, but uh, you know, okay. Well, we, we could go on this forever. Uh, we're going to be a long show as is. Let's move along. So Vince didn't just want to sweet talk Kurt, uh, to get him to come out of his retirement. That wasn't going to happen because he had the settlement going. Uh, so Vince agreed to buy out the remainder 
of Henning's insurance settlement to get him back in the ring and to save this card. Uh, business was on the decline, and Vince needed a top babyface. So they did a rushed angle with no buildup, and it was set for primetime wrestling where Heenan and Perfect would get into an argument, uh, landing to where Perfect would turn babyface and then agree to take the Warrior spot and join Randy Savage against Flair and Razor at Survivor Series 92 in Richfield, Ohio. So in the angle, Savage asked Perfect to be his partner, but Heenan kept on that Henning wasn't to that level anymore and he couldn't compete. And eventually, Perfect is annoyed enough that he accepts Savage's offer. So Heenan slaps him across the face. Perfect grabs Heenan by the tie and then dumps a pitcher of water over his head in what was one of the more memorable moments on primetime wrestling. Uh, Bruce, did you produce this? And what are your memories of the angle? I was there for it. I... Uh... I don't remember who the hell the producer was, but I was definitely in the studio there and, and part of it. And yeah, I was there. Um, What's your question? I mean, uh, my memories of it was we had no choice. I mean, we, we couldn't use warrior. We had very little time. It's a rushed angle because we had to pull a rabbit out of our ass with no time. We already had shows in the can and the only show that we could really manipulate and be able to shoot something almost primetime wrestling. So we had to shoot something there and get it out quickly. And, and we knew that we were going to have to eat the survivor series and just get what we could out there at the time as quickly as we could. Uh, Meltzer wrote quote, probably no wrestler, put Vince McMahon through more hell as a promoter during the eighties and nineties and got so little long-term heat, uh, and for doing so. But that was symbolic of Kurt's personality, as people would note that Henning would go into bars and become a catalyst for people wanting to kill him, but have a knack for immediately getting the heat off of him and making those same people moments later laughing around their, over their drinks with him. Uh, once in 1993 on a snowy night in Connecticut when Hart Brett was the WWF champion, uh, Henning let what were probably his inner feelings out saying that if he hadn't had the back injury, it would be him who was in that spot as the top guy in the company. Soon Kurt and Scott Hall were arguing with Brett moments later, Henning and Hart were drinking and laughing together. Although Hall apparently took things too seriously and smashed the window of the person's car that Brett was with. Uh, Bruce, do you remember hearing about this night in question and this bar incident? Never heard of it before. So the office never got wind of this as far as you know? I didn't, no. Okay. Uh, do you remember thinking that based on the way Kurt handled Vince, he should have had more heat than the way he did? Well, I don't know that the way Kurt handled Vince was any. We went to Kurt. Kurt didn't come to us. So it wasn't like Kurt said, hey, uh, have I got an idea? We went to Kurt saying, hey, Kurt. Um, but it's insinu- we have an idea. It's insinuated here that Kurt took him to the cleaners. Kurt made a good deal for himself. Well, well, so there's no heat on him for that or, or it just moves on quickly. No, it moves that there's not heat. We needed him. And so it's you, <laughs> you do business, you do what you have to do to continue to do business. The best, if it was a bad deal, then Vince wouldn't have done it. Uh, Jeff Jarrett says, what up? Uh, By the end of the year, Vince McMahon comes to Ric Flair and tells him that he's planning on moving into, quote, a youth movement and that Rick won't be featured in main events much longer. So he gives Rick the opportunity to fill out WCW for a return 
and Rick gets a good offer. So he puts in notice with Vince in late November. Uh, the decision is made to have Rick and Kurt get involved at the Royal Rumble and then set up a loser leaves match on the second ever Monday Night Raw. And that match actually helps put Raw on the map. Of course, Mr. Perfect would win, and then Flair is gone for WCW. Uh, what are your thoughts on the memories of setting up this match at Angle, Bruce? It was a hell. Of, it was a hell of a match. I remember that on Raw and Rick. I was there. We were in the Manhattan Center when Rick called Arn Anderson and says, "Hey, yeah, be sure and watch Raw tomorrow night." And I was there afterwards when when Rick says, "Hey, what do you think?" "Yep, no, I'm coming in." And it was it was what it was. But Vince felt that Rick had done his time. There really wasn't a place in his viewpoint for Rick any further in the WWF, at least in a featured role and gave him the opportunity. If grass really was greener on the other side, go get the money, go get it, use us as leverage and go back to WCW. If you can. Um, there were rumors in recent years that there may have been some preliminary discussions about having Mr. Perfect win the 1993 Royal Rumble, uh, given the shortage of baby faces on the roster at the time. Do you think there was any truth to that? No. Uh, Perfect would finish number nine in the PWI 500 for 1993, despite being winless on pay-per-view that year. Uh, let's run through some of those pay-per-views. He lost to the narcissist Lex Luger at WrestleMania nine at Caesars palace. Uh, even though both of Kurt's feet were on the ropes, uh, afterwards, Mr. Perfect chased Luger backstage before being jumped from behind by Shawn Michaels, which would set up a new feud for them. Uh, Bruce, I know you have a famous story about this Lex Luger, Kurt Henning <laughs> feud, uh, share that with our listeners. Lex hated working with perfect because Kurt was so damn good and Kurt loved to fuck with people. And Lex had these little tassels on his trunks and every single night, Kurt would pull off one tassel off of Lex's trunks and show it to him at the end of the, at the end of the match. And this one little thing every night would drive Luger insane. And the more that Lex would sell it, the more Kurt would do it. And he would only take one every night. But after a while, you'd see like a little gap in the tassels on Luger's trunks. And Kurt just thought that was the funniest damn thing in the world because it, it was such a little thing that irritated Luger to no end. That's awesome. It was. It was kind of funny. <laughs> that That was a rib. Sure. Perfect would lose the semifinal matchup of the 1993 King of the Ring to Bret Hart uh, and then lose his Intercontinental Championship match against Shawn Michaels by countout at SummerSlam 93 with some help from Shawn's new bodyguard, Diesel. Uh, and in doing so, Perfect became the first wrestler to unsuccessfully challenge for the Intercontinental title at SummerSlam as it had changed hands at every other try at SummerSlam. Uh, weirdly enough... Kurt wouldn't wrestle again on a WWF pay-per-view until the 2002 Royal Rumble. Uh, well, let's go back for a sec, if you will, uh, to, to SummerSlam. That, that was the one with Walter Payton, correct? Yep. I'll tell you a funny story about that match. You had Shawn Michaels, Kurt Hennig, and uh, was Razor, Razor wasn't involved there? 
Are we are we sure we're talking? I'm, I no, may no, be thinking you're, of you're something talk, else. You're talking about ninety four. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm talking about another one. When we get to that, I got a great Walter Payton story for you. Never mind. Yeah, he was with Razor against. Uh, <laughs> he was with Diesel. Razor. Yeah, because I started talking about it. I remember Razor is the one who looked at him and said, "What the fuck?" All right, we'll get to that. Maybe that'll be on a poll uh, soon. Um, all right, let's clear up some rumors and innuendo here, Bruce. Rumor and innuendo are. Kurt was booked for the 93 Survivor Series, but was allegedly taken off the road for being upset at being passed over for another IC title run. So Macho Man takes his spot at the end of the Survivor Series. This was news to me, um, but I, I found this when I was doing some research this week. What really happened with Kurt? I have no, I have no idea. He may have been hurt. Okay. But to, to take him off because he was upset over something, that's not something we would have done. Fast forward to WrestleMania 10. Uh, we're at Madison Square Garden. It's March 20th, 1994, and Perfect turned heel by costing Lex Liger his match against Yokozuna. Uh, they were set to feud, but Henning walked out on the program with his second career-ending back injury and took about a year off. Uh, what were the plans for the Luger feud as memory serves? The idea was to get Lex over, and Kurt was a much better heel than he was a babyface. And the idea was to kind of reverse those roles after a year with Kurt in the heel role, getting Lex over. It was as simple as that. Uh, Kurt returned uh, to take Jerry Lawler's place on commentary for superstars of wrestling. Uh, So he's back here getting paid twice again, collecting on the disability insurance policy while also working as an announcer um, for the company's top syndicated show, superstars of wrestling. Uh, here he worked with Vince McMahon and Jim Ross a lot. He did the pencil flip on every show that Bruce kind of talked about that he started on primetime wrestling. Uh, Bruce, I'm curious. We didn't really talk about this part. How did you find him to produce as a talent, as a commentator? Easy. Uh, Kurt was easy to produce. He was a natural. And his a lot of the uh, McMannikin and stuff like that, that was you would give Kurt an inch, he would take a mile. And I would just feed him little things like that. And I dare say that Kurt Hennig is single-handedly responsible. More so, Jesse Ventura would probably take the credit. But Kurt is probably more responsible for uh, people thinking that Vince had a hairpiece for all those years. Yeah. Um, Did did you guys send him to get some sort of training for this? Or did he just sit down and go and just had it? He sat down and just went. And during this time, a funny story is, as we sit here now, I'm looking up at a picture on my wall from a Sportscasters Hall of Fame dinner with Kurt Hennig. And one of the guests of honor that night was General Jim Westmoreland, who had just retired, one very famous you know, general in, in the theme of Patton and guys like that, Eisenhower and and General Jim Westmoreland, and he was this great Army general. And he's being honored at the Sportscasters Hall of Fame. And everybody is is walking up to him, and General Westmoreland, you know, so nice to meet you and all this other shit. And we're standing there, and Kurt looks over and goes like, who's the old dude? And I'm like, well, that's General Westmoreland. He's one of the honorees tonight. And he's Westmoreland is, is mingling, walking around. He's very, 
best I can describe, very stuffy. It was It was very stuffy atmosphere. It was the kind of atmosphere that Vince loved to drop us into the middle of and let us just be us and have everybody kind of look like, oh, God, there's those wrestlers. But Kurt, being Kurt, walks up to him, and, and, he, and Westmoreland comes around, and, and Kurt just kind of, he says, uh, General Westmoreland, and, and Kurt just looks at him and goes, hey, Jim, how you doing, buddy? And where there's this respect of this General Westmoreland, and Kurt's just kind of like, hey, Jim, how you doing? Ah, Mr. Perfect. Not Kurt Hennig, but I'll call you Jim, You, but you can call me Mr. Perfect type shit. And talking about, uh, talking to the picture I'm looking at is, is me and, and uh, Sarge and Kurt and everybody with Larry King. And Kurt was, it just had the gift of gab and the ability to mingle with any and everybody. And Kurt would just walk up and start a conversation with, with any and everybody. And, and the conversations that night with Larry King were absolutely hilarious. But good times. I'll post those on Twitter. He, uh, he being Kurt puts sequins on his sport coat and fashions it, uh, to say Mr. Perfect with some like ornate scrolls underneath. Would this have been something that the WWF seamstresses do for him or would he have just done this on his own? He did that on his own. That was before we had seamstresses out on the road. Uh, interesting to note, Curtis Axel wore the jacket we're talking about when his dad was inducted into the hall of fame. Uh, perfect was a special guest referee for a King of the ring 96 match between Shawn Michaels and the British bulldog. Uh, let's fast forward to later in the year in the fall when Hunter Hearst Helmsley has a falling out with uh, Mr. Perfect, who is a commentator at the time. And this happens right when Bret Hart is negotiating with WCW. Uh, there's some question as to, will he resign? Will he not? We've covered that on the Montreal episode. If you'd like to go back and listen to that. Uh, so Meltzer theorizes here that the WWF uh, needed a baby face uh, on the off chance they needed to replace Brett. Uh, so they started making some overtures about maybe buying out Kurt's policy once again. Uh, and of course, Brett eventually signed with the WWF. I'm curious, do you remember there being some debate about whether or not, you know, Kurt could be pushed as a baby face here? I don't think so. Not at that time. No. Anyway, Perfect threatens to come back and teach Triple H a lesson and eventually costs him matches against the Stalker, who we never thought we'd talk about, and now we've managed to talk about three or four times. See? And Freddie Joe Floyd. And I want to take a time out here for a minute because Freddie Joe Floyd is actually Tracy Smothers. And in my opinion, this has to be a rib. He's given this name as a rib on the Briscoes because they're real names were Fred Joe and Floyd Gerald. Um, tell me this is a rib on the Briscoes. It has to be. <laughs> this came about in a production meeting where they were looking for Tracy Smothers, a name for Tracy Smothers, and Tracy being a hell of a hand. And Everybody dies. reminiscent, Yeah, reminiscent of, of you know, one of the old-time workers. And someone said, well, why don't we call him? Because everybody called Gerald, Gerald. And his real name is Floyd, Floyd Gerald. And everybody's going, well, we should call him Floyd, Floyd something or Floyd something. And they're kind of making fun of the name Floyd because Gerald didn't particularly care for that name. And Jerry blurts out, yeah, well, Jack's real name is Freddie Joe. Oh. And it was born. Freddie Joe Joe Floyd. Floyd. 
in honor of the Briscoes. It's not a rib. It was an honorary. So was the character Freddie Joe Floyd supposedly an, an Oki? Yes. This is awesome. Uh, can we just have you admit right fast that that was a rib? It was, I just said it was not a rib. It was a, it was in okay. honor of. Okay. Anyway, the hype up their return. Oklahoma's finest. The, the only thing that Oklahoma ever produced that was worth a shit. Uh, shout out to our good friend, Jim Ross. Over oh, God JR's damn. I knew you were going to do that. And you know what? I love Jim Ross and shout out to Jim. And I love Jim and his podcast. And uh, Jim is a dear friend of mine. So don't be stirring shit up between me and you, Jim Ross because I love every, Jim. You said everything from there sucked. And I said, well, I like Jim. I love me some Briscoe boys and I love me some Jim Ross. But you, Conrad, are you aware of what keeps Oklahoma from falling into or what keeps Texas from falling in to the Gulf of Mexico? Because Oklahoma sucks. Exactly. Uh, so the hyper- direct your comments to, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad on Twitter. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I'll let you get out of your system. No, I'm done. Uh, anyway, the hype up the return. Perfect. Like it's uh, Michael Jordan coming back to the NBA and on October 21st, 1996 from Fort Wayne, Indiana, Mark Miro comes out to avenge Mr. Perfect and uh, perfect hits him with a chair, allowing Hunter Hearst Helmsley to win the intercontinental title. The backstory here was that Sable debuted with Hunter at WrestleMania 12, but quickly started appearing with Miro. So at least in storyline, Miro had quote unquote stolen Sable from Hunter. Um, so we turn Mr. Perfect heel here. what do you think of this angle? It was a way, it was simply a way to try and get people to care about Mark Miro and get sable involved and yeah it was just it was one of the bigger things that i mean it's the first time hunter won the intercontinental title and mr perfect's involved so it's a cool it's a cool little footnote in history that one of the greatest intercontinental champions of all time kurt henning you know was was there and and an integral part of hunter who's going to go on to be you know the freaking owner of the company uh, wins his first. Yeah, that was the plan title. at that time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so behind the scenes, Henning is set to receive a large cash settlement from Lloyd's of London for somewhere between one hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand dollars. And in order to receive this settlement, he would have to sign a statement saying he was permanently disabled and would never wrestle again. Supposedly, Henning never outright told the WWF he was coming back for this match with Helmsley. But he certainly gave that impression up until a few days prior to the taping. So during that time where they're thinking he's coming back, the WWF legal department sends a memo to Lloyd's to begin negotiations on another settlement buyout where they could buy out Kurt's policy so he could wrestle for them again. Now, remember, this is when the WWF thinks they may be losing their top baby face and Bret Hart to WCW. So they need somebody. And um, they have this whole Helmsley angle worked out. So, of course, when Lloyd gets the uh, memo, they shut down this whole lump sum payment to Henning. He can't be permanently disabled and contemplating a return to the ring at the same time. Uh, And after this, Lloyd's of London stops insuring wrestlers altogether. Uh, Bruce, carry me through this. Do you remember hearing about this Lloyd settlement? Like before it all blew up? what you that's not true what happened there was no memo ever sent to lloyds of london and there was no first of all the first negotiation there was no negotiation between the wwf and lloyds of london 
the negotiation was with Kurt, and Kurt had negotiations with Lloyds of London. But the WWF was never involved in any way, shape, or form with Lloyds of London, nor did they send anything to Lloyds of London as well. The uh, back and forth was with with Kurt, and Kurt had to release the company from any obligations, and Kurt had to do his Kurt had to do his own deal with Lloyds of London. WWF wasn't named in anything with Lloyds of London whatsoever. Let's talk about that. When you're saying he has to do his own deal, let's talk in layman's terms. What you're saying is if he's going to come back after he's been receiving all this money, he has to work out his own settlement where he, Kurt Henning, writes a check to pay back Lloyds of London for the money they've been paying him. But in turn, Vince cuts him a check to offset it. Is that accurate? Or, yeah, or he has to release Lloyds of London from from any further obligations. Okay. So let's talk about 96 now in the fall. Did everyone think Kurt was going to wrestle? Kurt had indicated to us at the time that he wanted to come back, yes, and that he, he wanted to wrestle. And he felt that he could get a settlement, that he, he essentially felt that he his time and his payments and all that were done with Lloyds of London. So this is going to get really confusing in a hurry. So let me just uh, go through my notes here, and then you can shit all over it. Uh, Henning was furious at the WWF for hurting his Lloyds settlement, feeling the company had betrayed him, so he reached out to Eric Bischoff. Kurt now showed some house shows and voiceover sessions for two separate television shows. So Jerry McDivitt starts sending legal letters to WCW claiming tampering with Henning's contract uh, and that it didn't expire until May of 97. Allegedly, McMahon was nervous that Henning would debut on the November 11th, 96 edition of Nitro. Of course, that didn't happen as WCW couldn't legally use him anyway until his contract expired. Uh, Bischoff couldn't exactly be charged with tampering either since it was Henning who contacted him. So before we get into all that he said, she said, uh, do you remember Kurt no-showing? Yes. Uh, at this time in the business, didn't everyone just assume that if a guy starts no-showing, that means he's jumping? Yeah, you were fearful of that without a doubt. Did you communicate with Vince about this particular situation of you think he's with you and now he's not here and you're having a kind of scramble for television, what was Vince expressing about the whole perfect situation? Well, no one really knew. And we, we had Kurt come in and Kurt came in with his dad and met with us. And Kurt felt that, you know, I don't know what his dealings were because he never really came out and told us. Let let me, let me patch this up here. Here's what I got in my notes. Eventually Vince and Kurt meet and verbally agree to work things out. So Kurt could stay in the WWF Meltzer reports that Vince offered him a five-year deal with a $300,000 downside guarantee to keep him, which is more than he was set to make on the insurance claim. So Henning started training for a return with his old buddy Rangans. Uh, when Bischoff made an offer for a three-year deal worth $750,000, so Henning never told McMahon about those negotiations and instead no showed an autograph session, the hall of fame dinner, which at that time was held the night before survivor series 96. And then the survivor series pay-per-view the next night Meltzer called this quote, a unique way of letting McMahon know he had jumped to the opposition. So I didn't know the story that his dad was involved. So you guys call a meeting and, and say, you just talk on the phone and say, Hey, well, we'll get together. And then Kurt and his dad come to Connecticut. Well, Kurt and his dad came to Connecticut, and the idea was simply Kurt was unhappy, 
and he wanted more money and he, he wanted more money to come back and wrestle. And we had talked about, well, here's the thing, Kurt, first of all, you no show and you didn't inform anybody of your no show. That's unprofessional. And the deal was still on the table. We had discussed with him before he decided it wasn't enough money. So I don't know if, you know, the only people that really would know is, is Kurt. If Kurt called Eric when he got the initial uh, offer from us to come back and started, you know, seeing, doing his due diligence with Lloyd's of London, I don't know what happened on that side. But when Kurt came back, they were not happy with the offer. The offer essentially was off the table, but Kurt was still under contract to us during that time. And that's pretty much where we left it. And then, you know, they, uh, I believe Vince ended up giving him a release somewhere along the line, but there had, there had been an offer beforehand and they didn't like it. He no showed, they came in and met, we couldn't come to terms and they left. And that was the last time that, that we dealt with them for a while. So when y'all saw them face to face for the last time, when they left, you knew they're gone. Yes, that was a general feeling. Yes. So the no-showing, the Hall of Fame dinner and all that, that's all bullshit. You knew he wasn't going to be there. At that point, I don't know when. I'm My time frame, I don't know if the meeting took place after the Hall of Fame dinner and, and Survivor or beforehand. Well, so do you Do you at ever any point feel like when he's unhappy about money that y'all have patched it together with a new deal? Like verbally agreed to a deal, not pen to paper. But we've all kind of agreed, here's what we're going to do. We had verbally agreed, yes. And then, and then, he, he, was, then he was unhappy. Then he was unhappy with it, and he wanted to talk, and Vince was like, well, that's the deal. And he no-showed and couldn't get a hold of him, then came in and talked. And that's kind of how I remember it as far as the exact timing of that, where it took place and all of that. I don't really recall. So there weren't two sets of no shows. It was just the one before the face to face meeting. And then after face to face, it's, it's finito. After the face to face, it was pretty, pretty much done. Um, talk me through this Lloyd's of London thing. When you guys are sitting down face to face, does it even come up? Which Lloyd's of London thing? They, just the fact that he Here's the was deal. negotiating a deal with them to get I, out of it? I'm going to say a name, and I don't want you to get fired up. But Meltzer wouldn't have just fucking made this up. Kurt maybe told him. And, and so I'm saying maybe Kurt's spinning yarn. But somebody told Meltzer, because this has been repeated many times since, that he felt betrayed by the WWF because they were trying to buy out this clause, and he felt like they were messing with his money. And now you're saying that didn't happen. So I just want you to clear up. Because I'm not saying Meltzer lied. I'm saying perhaps Meltzer himself was worked by Kurt Henning. I don't know that. I'm just freestyling here. But help me understand the face-to-face sit-down with Larry, Kurt, Vince, and whoever else is in the room. Is Lloyd's and this, you know, quote-unquote buyout and the perceived betrayal by Kurt even discussed? Yeah, Lloyd's of London is discussed. But again, that always came back to... That was Kurt's deal. Kurt had to deal with them. We were not in a position to get involved with Lloyd's of London directly in any way, shape, or form. So okay. that was that I, was made I feel, clear. I feel like I'm talking in circles here. Kurt said that you did, but we didn't. No. Okay, so Kurt never said to you that he did. He just said to everyone else that you did. 
I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, this, this no showing move, how unprofessional is a move like that? It's unprofessional. Why do you think I mean, he does this without having a conversation with Vince? I mean, he's not scared of Vince. They've worked deals like this before. Is he embarrassed? Is he ashamed of himself? Why just no show just to be disrespectful? It's not like the guy didn't have balls to talk to Vince. No, I, it may have been, he just might've been pissed off. He just might've been pissed off at the time and feel that after thinking about it, that he deserved more money than what was offered. Maybe he tested the waters and heard that all of his buddies in WCW were making a lot more money. It could be a number of things. When he, um, did you know at that point he had been talking to Bischoff? No. Uh, or were you in the room when Larry and Kurt met with Vince? Yes. Who else was in the room? I believe, uh, I think Lisa Wolf was actually in the room. We got to do a story on her one day. Oh God. Um, Linda, Linda McMahon was in the room. Wow. That's not something you hear very often. Is this held at uh, Titan Towers or Vince's house? I was held at Titan Towers in Vince's booking room. Right off of his office in the corner. Yep. Uh, so when he leaves, you guys get to work on rewriting television because clearly he was figured into your plans and now he's gone. Is that fair to say? Well, we had hoped, but it wasn't a, I don't want to say it wasn't a top spot, but it wasn't the top spot. Right. So next. Okay. Unfortunately, you become callous and when somebody moves, moves on and you've got to change, it's oftentimes just, well, okay. Next. It yeah. So he sits out for like more than six months while his contract expires. And I'm curious, what's he getting paid while, while he's sitting out just his regular downside, but not showing up anywhere. Well, if he was in breach of his contract, he probably wasn't <laughs> receiving anything, but he had just had to wait the time out. So he's just chilling at the house, getting the Lloyd's payout, maybe. And then work some sort of buyout, hold harmless or whatever before he starts WCW. We, we guess. I guess. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so he debuts about six months later. It's uh, the very end of June, June 30th, 1997. It's a Monday Nitro from Vegas. Uh, he shows up in a limo and was called a quote unquote impact player. He was described as being Minnesota's greatest athlete. Uh, he debuted as a mystery partner. That was his first match uh, with Diamond Dallas Page. And. Uh, Bischoff has long since denied that WCW tried to replicate the Mr. Perfect character. Um, <clears throat> you know, lots of guys are jumping back and forth here and you just said he wasn't really a top spot. Can you kind of put in perspective where Kurt Henning leaving the WWF is relative to some others? He's below diesel. He's below racer. He's below macho. He's below Hogan. Is that fair to say? I think it'd be fair to say, yeah. And at the time, he wasn't wrestling for us, right? So it wasn't, you know, wasn't that big of a blow. But sure. he still, he still was a, a name. He was a recognized name for WWF. So any time that a recognized name left, it hurt. Uh, Kurt was involved in the famous Four Horsemen promo that the NWO would later spoof, where Arn Anderson gave Kurt "quote unquote" my spot to join the ho- the Horsemen. Uh, after the parody, the two teams were set for the 97 war games. Uh, in that match, the last man to enter the cage for the horsemen, uh, which at the time were Mongo, uh, Benoit, and Flair, was Kurt Henning, who, of course, turned heel, uh, allowing the heels to win the match and smash the head of Ric Flair in the cage, killing Winston-Salem, North Carolina forever for the wrestling business. 
Uh, the next night, Mongo faced Henning for revenge for the horseman, and Henning beat him clean when, uh, with the fisherman's suplex and won the U.S. title. He would go on to lose that United States championship a couple of months later uh, at Starcade. Um, Bruce Rick is of the opinion that this War Games in Winston-Salem crushed the town for all wrestling promotions, including the WWE today. Can you speak to that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think that uh, there are a lot of things that can be pointed out that killed towns and killed this and killed that. Maybe I, I don't really know. Um, uh, let's, it is, that's one of those. It is what it is. Unfortunately, WCW had a more party atmosphere than the WWF did at the time. And, uh, Kurt appeared visibly impaired for an in-ring promo on nitro. Uh, he would face Goldberg in a world title match at bash of the beach 98, just six days after Goldberg beat Hogan for the title at the Georgia dome. Uh, Meltzer had this to say, quote, away from wrestling and to an extent inside the ring itself, he was like a younger version of Ric Flair during his heyday as he was a great bump taker who everyone loved to wrestle because he made them look better than just about anyone else. And outside the ring, he loved to drink all night. He had the reputation as someone who could get totally wasted and come back the next day and deliver a four-star match. Uh, Bruce, were these the two guys who fit this description better than any other. And why do you think that was? Sure. I, Kurt was a workhorse and the bastard didn't work out that much. <laughs> he looked like a million bucks. He looked like he spent hours in the gym and he hated to work out. He didn't work out that much and looked great. Uh, he was a natural. Kurt Hennig is the closest thing if he wasn't Mr. Perfect, he would have been the natural because he made everything look easy. Uh, he he could talk, drop of a dime, and have the best match on the card every single night if he wanted to. And he, he loved to have his beer. He loved to have a, have a few drinks. After Maybe more than a few drinks. Uh, we're going to get there. After taking some time off for an injury, he returned to WCW at Starcade <laughs> to help Eric Bischoff defeat Ric Flair. That's right. Uh, Eric Bischoff beat Ric Flair at Starcade. Let that sink in for a minute. Uh, of course, he was part of the Rap is Crap World Tour 99 with the West Texas Rednecks. Uh, this was supposed to make them heels, but of course, that didn't really work in the South. They were baby faces, and some country stations even played it on the radio, making it a cult favorite. Uh, we may have that coming up here for you in just a few minutes. Uh, during this time, he won the tag titles with Barry Windham. Bruce, I know you heard it. You're a country music fan. You like wrestling. What did you think of rap is crap? Well, I agree with the sentiment. Rap is crap. <clears throat> but you already know that. Since you make it listen to me whenever, whenever I'm at the Conradison. Uh, you know um, words. But I am a fan of broccoli. Song. There you go. Let's move All on. Right. Uh, shades of gray. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I remember rap is crap. I couldn't sing it to you. And I'm sure it was a great, had a good beat, but you couldn't dance to it. But something like that. Uh, while in WCW with Vince Russo booking, he did an angle where he would be forced to retire the next time he lost a match. So he had a series of fluke wins that got him over as a baby face. And he lost the November pay-per-view in Toronto to Buff Bagwell and received a huge standing ovation and loud, perfect chance from the crowd who believed they had indeed witnessed Kurt's last match. So he wrestled the next night on Nitro. <laughs> Bruce, do you remember this? 
I do not. I I was trying to avoid Nitro at that time. Uh, while in WCW, so was everybody else, by the way. Uh, Vince Russo wanted to try Sean Stasiak as the perfect one and have Hanning put him over to sort of pass the torch for him, at least as far as the perfect gimmick goes. Uh, Henning did it, but of course it never caught on. Uh, Bruce, this begs the question, does the new anything ever work in wrestling? <laughs> Usually not very well because they like the old everything. Yeah, which is why they like you. Uh, Kurt's WCW contract expired in the summer of 2000, uh, and that was it for Kurt uh, on a big level. Uh, on the WWE produced DVD about Mr. Perfect, Jim Ross suggested that Kurt probably enjoyed his WCW time because he didn't have the pressure of being a top guy, could have fun, and the money was good. And he sort of insinuates that having a good time and making money was probably more important to him at that point of his career than being a top guy. Do you think that's a fair assessment of Kurt at the time and most wrestlers? Yes, I do. I think that uh, Kurt was all about taking care of his family. Here was a guy that, I mean, he lived and breathed for his family. He really did. I mean, he was a family man. He loved his kids to death. And... I dare say that's probably why Kurt really enjoyed his time as a commentator because he could spend more time at home. Uh, real quick, let's touch on something from that same WWE DVD. Baseball legend and friend of Kurt's Wade Boggs claimed that he created the Wolfpack hand gesture and that Kurt did it to Scott Hall and then it became the NWO's deal. Uh, Bret Hart in his book claimed that he stole it from a European tour. Bruce, what say you? Bret Hart stole it from a bunch of guys in a bar and, uh, Brett was doing it on a, your, he was, he, it's Brett, Brett did it. And Brett was the first one to do it. Uh, in late 2001, the XWF was using him as their top heel against Hulk Hogan, Buff Bagwell and Vampiro. Uh, Kurt even had Bobby Heenan accompany him to the ring for one set of the tapings. And uh, Perfect, perhaps trying to leverage the XWF for more money, got himself booked on what was supposed to be a one-day-only shot with the WWF for the Royal Rumble in Atlanta in January of 2002. Uh, Kurt was number 25 in the Rumble and got down to the Final Four with Steve Austin, Kurt Angle, and Triple H, who would ultimately go on to win. Uh, and he was supposed to fly out to Vegas the next day after the Rumble to join the XWF crew uh, at the NATP convention where they're trying to sell the show. Uh, instead he signed a three-year deal with the WWF. Uh, this left the XWF with a bunch of episodes in the can with our top heel who was no longer there. Uh, Bruce, what do you remember about Kurt's return to the rumble? Who reaches out to who? And, uh, why did they let him get down to the final four? If they didn't have a long-term deal planned. Nostalgia. And I'm sure we reached out to Kurt. I, man, I totally forgot about this. But it was for nostalgia's sake and Kurt being a great worker and other guys wanting to work with Kurt and to be able to put the new guy in there with a name like Mr. Perfect and people say, oh, my God, is, is he going to win it? Uh, the WWF tried to redo some of the skits that really got him over uh, with the with the original gimmick. Uh, they had Perfect playing chess and whatnot. Uh, within a couple of weeks of him signing, though, it seemed like they had already given up on him. He made several of the syndicated shows, but never did much. Bruce, you said you kind of forgot about this, so you probably don't remember any of this. Well, do the plans change here? Was signing him just to stick it to the XWF? I don't think anybody even knew what the hell the XWF was. I still don't even know what the hell it is. 
but I do I do remember the vignettes, and they were shot at TV. They were they were shitty in comparison <laughs> to the originals, but it just it just wasn't there this time around. Uh, the night after the Rumble, he beat Val Venus on Raw. Then he faced uh, Austin on the February 25th Raw. Of course, he lost that one. Uh, he would lose to Edge on Heat on March 3rd, and then again to Austin on Raw on March 4th. Uh, he had several matches on Sunday Night Heat, and he worked a dark match at WrestleMania 18 in a six-man with Lance Storm and Test, uh, and they lost to Rikishi, Scotty Tuhati, and Albert. He wound up teaming uh, on the house shows with Sean Stasiak throughout March and April, and he was drafted in the very first WWE draft. He was drafted to Raw on March 25th. Uh, he teamed with Bossman uh, on TV against the Hardy Boys, and he lost matches to the Big Show and Van Dam on TV as well. His final televised match with the WWE would be taped on April 29th, where he beat Tommy Dreamer, and that match aired on Sunday Night Heat on May 5th. Uh, his final WWE match was a dark match at the UK-only Insurrection pay-per-view on May 4th, 2002. Uh, and in that match, um, he beat Goldust. So he won his last match. Uh, he was released after the May 5th, 2002 plane ride from hell, uh, where he drank too much and was wrestling with Brock Lesnar on the airplane. Allegedly, this all happened near the door and that scared some passengers who were concerned the door could fly open and then kill everyone instantly. Uh, Bruce, I know you weren't there for this, but good Lord, we get a lot of questions about the plane ride from hell. Uh, what can you tell us about this, and what do you remember? We don't have to go through the whole plane ride, but about perfect specifically. I wasn't even there. You know, rumor and innuendo, but allegedly Kurt had just been ribbing Brock the entire tour and on the plane quite a bit. And I guess Brock kind of hit the limit when Kurt tried to take him down on the plane and Brock fought back a little bit, and the two wrestled around. And those are two big hosses, and allegedly they fell into the emergency exit door. And, yeah, people became <laughs> – you become concerned when two 250-pound-plus guys start wrestling around near the emergency exit. So I guess the question is, when do you find out he's fired? Probably that TV because they, they landed in – Newark and I was staying at uh I was staying at the TV hotel at Newark and heard about it and then I guess when everybody got together at TV it was decided that uh he started it and he needed to go. Yeah. And and he had too much to drink is really the root of this. Is that fair? From what I hear, yeah. A lot of people did. Uh, after leaving the WWF, he joined NWA TNA in Nashville when they were still doing their weekly Wednesday night pay-per-views for nine ninety nine. dollars uh, He was trying to get himself hired back and booked into a match with Brock Lesnar based on his promos, where he would claim to be the guy who took Lesnar down at 35,000 feet. Uh, of course, that match never happened, and his last NWA TNA match was an axe handle on a pole match where... Uh, he beat David Flair in about two minutes in January of 03. Bruce, would he have reached out to you guys before signing with TNA? He might have, but I, I don't know anything about it. Were you guys watching the TNA show at that point or keeping up with anything that happened there in 03? Not really. All right. Let's get to the sad part of the story, I guess. We'll try to end on a happy note in just a minute, though. 
Uh, Kurt passed away on February 9th, 2003. He was found dead in a Homestead Suites hotel in Brandon, Florida. He died of acute cocaine intoxication. He was 44. Kurt had flew to the Tampa area on the evening of February 8th and was in Tampa uh, to do a show at a fair called Jimmy Hart's All-Star Wrestling, which was also being uh, taped for a documentary about what happens to former wrestlers when the mainstream leaves them behind. Uh, the night he arrived, he went out with the Cuban assassin, Greg Valentine, and the Nasty Boys. And the next morning, he was supposed to go to breakfast with Mickey J and hit the gym for the show. Uh, Henning didn't go and uh, told Mickey J that he had been to the bathroom every hour and barely slept. He had been hiccuping constantly the night before uh, and then obviously was back and forth to the bathroom all night. So he said he was just going to sleep it off and then meet the guys later. Uh, that afternoon, the Cuban assassin came to the room to pick him up to go work out, but nobody answered the phone or the door. So they asked a maid to open the door, but it was dead bolted shut, but they could at least see through the crack in the door and they could see that he was passed out. So they eventually get into the room through a window and found him not breathing. Uh, they called 911 and the paramedics were not able to revive him. He was pronounced dead on scene. Bruce, how did you find out that Mr. Perfect had passed away? I don't recall. I, I holy shit. Um, didn't expect this one. I mean, I expected this. I didn't expect my reaction. Did I do too much detail? Sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I um. I want to say either Vince or Steph told me. Um, wow. Uh, fuck me. You know, it, it just sucks. It, it, it sucks. And, it, and it's, it's sad. It's sad for somebody like Kurt who gave their life to entertaining people into the business that for all of the great memories and all the shit that, um, that he did that, that you go to and he, he, he left us way too soon due to a cocaine overdose. Cause that wasn't Kurt. And to know Kurt and to know how much, that he he loved his family and how much that he he cared about you know being home with them and seeing his kids in little league and being around them and that's why he did it i mean that's why he did all the shit he did mm-hmm. um he was on the road he was working busting his ass so his family could have the best of everything and it's just sad, you know, what happened in an isolated incident that, that is, that has these unfortunate, horrible consequences. So it can happen to anybody, um, at any time. And wow, shit. Uh, you know, Kurt, Kurt's one of those guys, man. I, I really love Kurt Hennig, the man. 
and was a source of, of a lot of joy, <laughs> a pain in the ass at times, but always fun. And you described it earlier when you said, you know, he, he could piss people off and then be drinking with them the next second. Um, that was Kurt. And you can never stay mad at him. And he was always life of the party and always made people laugh. Even like I said, even when you wanted to, to kill him, um, because he, he ribbed you, you ended up laughing and hugging the son of a bitch. And that, that's the guy that everybody should remember and, and, and keep, you know, keep in the forefront. So it just sucked. Let's, let's pour through some more bad, then we'll get to some good. Uh, his death received considerable media coverage in Tampa, Minnesota, the Associated Press, Newsday, CNN, Fox News, and many others. Uh, TNA ran a tribute for Kurt to open their February 12th show and had Chris Harris pin Ricky Morton with what Mike Tanay called the perfect plex. Uh, the WWF ran a nice video tribute with lots of Mr. Perfect vignettes on their May 17th edition of Raw. Roddy Piper paid tribute to Henning on the final episode of Portland Wrestling that week. And Buddy Rose did the same thing on a house show in Oregon the same night. Uh, the OVW promotion ran a tribute piece on their television as well. His viewing and funeral were held on February 16th and 17th of 2003. Jesse Ventura, Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, Stephanie McMahon, Brent Hart, Bill Goldberg, Vern Gagne, Greg Gagne, Brock Lesnar, Rick Steiner, Ray Trailer, Brian Blair, Steve Kern, Jim Brunzel, Masa Saito, Brian Nobbs, Baron Von Raschke, Harley Race, Jerry Sags, John Nord, Sir Oliver Humperdinck and many more all attended the funeral. Um, his mausoleum uh, is at a cemetery in New Hope, Minnesota. Uh, Barry Wyndham wrote in Henning's guest book for Kurt's funeral. You always said that one day we would be joining up in heaven with Rick talking about rude and Bobby talking about Duncan jr. And raise so much hell in heaven. They'd have to change the name. Uh, Bobby Heenan told Dave Meltzer, he called me last week and it was strange. It was like Ray Stevens who never called me other than to say, pick me up at five. Stevens called me the day before he died. He said he just wanted to talk. I'd known him for more than 30 years and he had never once called me to just talk. That's just how he was. Kurt called last week and I wasn't at home. He left a message saying that he just wanted to see how I was doing. Um... This happens, you know, his funeral is on a Monday. Did Vince miss TV for this? Yeah, he did. What does it say about the respect that Kurt carried in the business where so many guys show their support like this and show up, especially on their busiest day of the week? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot of respect, but also love. Yeah. And, um, Kurt was a special guy. And, and Vince did love him and respect him. And everybody, if you knew him, you loved him. Kurt went to the WWE Hall of Fame in 2007. Uh, he would have been a couple, ba- a couple days past his 49th birthday had he been alive to be there to see it. Uh, on July 4th, 2007, he was put into the uh, Luthes Hall of Fame in Waterloo, Iowa. Um, he's also uh, more recently inducted into the professional wrestling hall of fame in amsterdam new york uh just last year in 2015 
Uh, Chris Jericho says that uh, he was the best performer in WWE history to never be WWF champion. Bruce, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Uh, Heenan says that he believes Ric Flair and Kurt Henning to be the two greatest wrestlers to ever come out of Minnesota. Is that even debatable, Bruce? Absolutely not. Sean Waltman said in the kayfabe commentaries release that Kurt Henning compared every old country song to the business. This is whenever they would be traveling together and they'd listen to old country. He could somehow tie it back and relate the song and the lyrics to the business. Do you have any memories of country music and Kurt Henning and these sort of trips? Hey, stop loving her today. Um, yeah, man, Kurt, I think turned a bunch of us on to, to Chris Ledoux and, uh, Chris Ledoux had a lot of rodeo songs. Um, a uh, country singer who doesn't get his due. Garth Brooks also does a lot of Chris Ledoux stuff. And, and the first time I ever heard that name was from Kurt Hennig. And I would also probably, Kurt also got me listening to Garth Brooks. But, uh, yeah, I'd say that, because that, I wasn't a big country fan as a kid. And, and, and Kurt probably helped that along. Uh Kurt and Jerry Briscoe, without a doubt. So, Kurt had a uh, reputation as being one of the best bumpers in the history of the business. And uh, Kevin Nash said uh, he broke in uh, Scott and Sean, meaning Kurt, and he was sort of the father of the clique, so to speak, with their way of thinking into the mentality of take everything the guy has, kick out of it, and then beat him with your finish. But give, always give. If you're the heel, make the baby face. I remember watching Saturday night's main event, and Perfect made Hogan look like he could work his ass off. It wasn't the standard Hulk Hogan match. Back then, I thought Hulk was having a good night. I didn't know any better. But then I got in the ring with him. I bailed him out of the corner and went, oh. That's Kevin Nash's words about working with Kurt Henning, from what you remember, Bruce, how close was Kurt to the click? Because he did have a relationship with Scott Hall and Shawn Michaels and may or may not have clipped an eyebrow or two on Shawn Waltman before. No, Kurt was, Kurt was close with those guys and he liked all of them. So like I said, he, he did have a hand in, in Hall and he had a hand in uh, Shawn Michaels back in the AWA as well. So Kurt was a big influence on those guys. He was an honorary member of the clique, I guess you could say. Was Kevin Nash's assessment of Kurt Common where they necessarily didn't get how good he was until they get in the ring with him, and then it clicks all the little things that he did that so many others didn't? On the money. Uh, Scott Hall said on Steve Austin's podcast that Kurt taught him to, quote-unquote, babyface the crew and use them as an asset and a resource by asking little things like, hey, bro, is there any place special I could stand where you could shoot me better? So he wasn't just looking for input from guys like Kevin Dunn, but he would talk to the lighting guys, the pyro guys, the camera guys. Um, did you experience this to be the case, Bruce, that Kurt was always asking uh, the people actually you know, in the trenches, so to speak, how he could make their job better and how he could do better? Yeah, Kurt was a pro, and we would often tell him uh, once you suggested it to him once, he figured out how to make himself look better, and then he would know the guys to go to, and 
and make himself look better. So <laughs> he would go to the resources he had and, and figure out ways to make himself look better. Uh, tell me about gargling Jack Daniels in the wrestling business. Was this Kurt's drink of choice? Why gargle? Is this one of Kurt Henning's contributions to the business? As far as I know, yeah. But uh, Undertaker used to gargle Jack, but Kurt may have Started may have been that. the first that I recall. And it allegedly, I guess, gets in your system, gets you drunker faster. I don't know, but I hated it because I hated Jack Daniels, and I've, I've done it a few times, and um, not real crazy about it. Uh, the DVD, The Life and Times of Mr. Perfect, was released by the WWE on September 9th, 2008, and it debuted at number one on the Billboard Recreational Sports uh, DVD sales list. The WWE promoted it on Raw by showing Charlie Haas, Charlie Haas attempting to recreate the Mr. Perfect skits, but failing to do so, saying there's only one Mr. Perfect. Bruce, I know you were gone by the time this DVD came out, but you're all over the DVD. When did you guys start working on this project? Would this have been around the time he goes in the Hall of Fame? Probably so, and uh, maybe even before that. There constantly constantly there's works in progress and they go back and they find old uh, clips of people that you know they'll give you a list of questions and keep you in the pre-tape room for hours upon hours if you let them asking you questions about every topic under the sun so a lot of times those are just culmination of hey we got a lot of great perfect comments right so his um his son Curtis Axel, who we talked about earlier, Joseph Henning, uh, would defeat Wade Barrett and The Miz in a three way match at Payback in 2013 to become the Intercontinental Champion. Uh, so this is the first and only father son duo to ever win the Intercontinental title. Of course, uh, did you ever work with uh, Joe Henning? Did you ever spend any time with Curtis Axel, Bruce? No, I met him when he was a kid, and that's about it. Well, let's talk about what everybody really wants to hear. Uh, besides talking about the vignettes, what everybody wants to hear is Kurt as a ribber. So let's end on a high note. Uh, he was a notorious ribber, and Wade Boggs talked about shaving cream on the telephone receiver or baby powder in the blow dryer or poking a hole in the top of a beer can without a guy looking so it, he would just douse himself. Uh, Harley race told a story about taking mustard and lighter fluid and putting it in the crotch of your tights or your underwear, uh, where it would just burn the devil out of your nether regions. Uh, mean Jean talked about Kurt taking a slam in animal's son's potty training toilet and then closing the lid and just leaving it in there. Uh, Jerry Lawler talked about tying guys pants in a knot or cutting a leg off of the pants or even padlocking guys bags. Uh, Vern talks about him freezing turds and then putting them <laughs> in guys' bags to thaw out on their ride home. Uh, he would put uh, X-lax in people's drinks and then wait for the reaction. Uh, he would shave the eyebrows of younger wrestlers who passed out from partying too much. Uh, he did that at least one, two, or three times. Uh, he put rotten cream cheese in Don Fry's boots. Uh, he would spray a horrible smelling gimmick spray in battle Royals that would cause everyone to bail out thinking someone had taken a dump in their pants. Uh, Rick Steiner once said that when Vince flew in a bunch of Japanese wrestlers for raw, 
Kurt crushed up uh, a bunch of halcyon and put them in the coffee and catering. So a couple hours before the show, Vince walks through catering and finds a half a dozen Asian men asleep on all the tables in catering. Uh, once when he was training some Japanese young boys, he told them it was a tradition to shave their head on the very last day of camp. So of course they bought it and he shaved their head. Uh, he once put a dead fish in Mark Madden's suit hours before a nitro broadcast, but by the time Mark discovered it, it was too late and he had to wear the smelly suit the entire show. Uh, he was notorious for taking dumps in people's bags and cutting up their clothes. In 98, WCW was bringing in the warrior through a trap door in the ring. So one night, Scott Norton, Warrior, and Henning are all hiding under the ring when Henning took a giant dump under there that caused Norton to throw up and Warrior to get sick. Uh, the rib being they couldn't leave, of course. Uh, all of this earned the nickname Dennis the Menace from Chief J. Strongbow for Kurt Henning. And uh, something I didn't know until doing some research here is that the famous Dynamite Kid Rougeau fight is actually probably Kurt Henning's fault. Um, apparently one of the Rougeaus believed that their clothes were cut up by the British Bulldogs. It was actually Kurt Henning. And that led to the sucker punch that knocked out Dynamite's teeth. And all of this because the Rougeaus thought Dynamite had cut their clothes up, but it was really Kurt. Uh, Bruce, do you have any other Kurt Henning ribs we can discuss? I think he kind of ran the gambit. I mean, Kurt was notorious for, you know, locking people's bags up, padlocking people's bags up on top of um, air conditioners in the locker rooms and just all those things. He, he would he would take condoms from one bag and, and put them in another guy's bag and hide them so that, like, when they got home to their wife or girlfriend, they said, what the hell are these condoms doing in here? And, uh, or write down Cindy's phone number and just drop it in someone's bag. So that when they got home, their significant other might find it. Um, but you pretty much covered the whole gambit of, um, Kurt Hennig ribs. He was notorious and he was also notorious for pointing the blame somewhere else. He, he loved to enjoy his ribs from afar and just kind of <laughs> sit back and, and maybe set someone else up for the fall. Um, he was a classic, man. There, there'll never be another Mr. Perfect. And uh, this was an absolutely perfect way to pay tribute to him. Uh, I want to give a quick shout-out to a uh, friend of the show, no matter what Bruce says, Mr. Dave Meltzer. I could not find... Kurt Henning's obituary uh, issues on the Observer website. I emailed Dave and he hooked me right up. So the majority of this research today uh, is either from the DVD, uh, from some various shoot interviews, but the lion's share of it is from the Wrestling Observer. Uh, thank you, Dave, for sharing that information with me. Uh, oh, well, you want to clear up Dave Meltzer shit? Let's go ahead and clear up some Dave Meltzer shit. I don't hate Dave Meltzer. Like I said, I always thought Dave was a nice guy. All right, cool. I don't agree with his reporting of some things that it, that they are inaccurate and they're taken as fact. That's my problem. Well, I think you expect him to be 100% accurate all the time, but we just did a damn three-hour show, and you maybe corrected it twice. So it's pretty good. Not really. Bruce, I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. 
As do I. I hope everybody has a very, very Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. And to our Jewish friends, Happy Hanukkah. And everybody else that celebrates whatever the hell you celebrate. Have a great holiday season. I know I will. Conrad, Merry Christmas. Hey, and Festivus for the rest of us. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Richard. of crap
brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.